Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Feiler. In today's episode, I have the honor of talking with my aunt, Dr. Janice Feiler. We talk about the Spanish flu, work ethic, growing up the oldest, growing up Angelino, the depths of teaching, the varieties of home life, how to deal with spirited students, leadership, Christianity, race in America, trust, the COVID vaccine, and other topics. This podcast is supported by a Patreon. You can support it at patreon.com forward slash Kari underscore Filer. There is one point at the end of the episode where I say that I suspect or that I think or that I know that mental asylums were abusing 10 to 15 percent of their patients in the American asylum system. I was wrong. And I'll just take this opportunity to correct that. My subsequent research has showed me, has taught me that mental asylums were abusing between 50 and 80 percent of their patients. And so my stance has changed from we need to bring back the mental asylum system with that large baby that was in that bathwater to I hope we can bring back the mental asylum system if we can address the deep human flaw that made our previous system so bad. I hope you enjoy the show. How are you these days? Oh, I'm fine. I, you know, I, um, I don't know. I'm always doing lots of stuff, but it, I think that's the only way I know how to operate. I learned that, uh, if you stay busy, you don't have time to be stressed. <laughs> mm. Mm. You know what I mean? Cause people get depressed. I think if you're bored. Absolutely. Absolutely. I so think I'm, ne- I'm, ne- I'm never bored. I think people get depressed when they aren't getting better. I think there's a part of our biology that says I need to be working towards something, towards some goal. I need to be improving. I need to be striving. Uh, and that's really where our health comes from. You have to do some sort of learning or striving or creating or something. Yeah. I mean, if, if I, you know, like if I've been to the dentist or the doctor and I don't feel well, I can sit and, you know, watch movies, you know what I mean, mm. You know, which is mindless. I can do that, but I just can't do that every day. <laughs> you can't do that when you feel up to some some task. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you know, like, like I, I, I've been watched, you know, things just a little bit, maybe in the middle of the night, I might, hmm. but I just during the day, I feel like I got to be doing something. What do you like to do? Oh, I've been afraid to tell you all the stuff I've been doing. Um, okay. So I am retired, but I do teach like one class here and one class there. Hmm. And I, super, and I supervise student teachers on both campuses, you know, but I, but I can do it cause it's all online right now. Now, mm. if I was driving back and forth, it might be a bit too much. Mm. Mm. But I do, I, I do, I've done the student teachers online. I did student teachers online, and I've done um, all my classes online. You know, since since the pandemic. Well, I even had one class. Let me see, one class that started. No, that was all during the pandemic. I, yeah, the, the pandemic's been two semesters now, right? Let me see. It's been yeah, over. all of last. Yeah, yeah, that's a full year. Yeah. Yeah, so I've done them all online. Yeah, wow. Uh, I tell you, the pandemic, it's actually been good for me, surprisingly. Uh, I'm just fortunate that I happen to have a skill set that translates to working from home and working remotely. uh, And I just developed that skill set. So having that came right in the nick of time. Uh, So I'm as busy and as lucrative now as I've ever been. (laughs) Thanks to the pandemic. Oh, that's good. So everything you're doing is online. What do you do actually every day? 
I'm a uh, developer for a couple different gaming projects. Three, actually. Oh, okay. So one is my own Minecraft project, that, a world that I've built that I'm working with a publisher on getting published. Another is I'm part of a team that's building a Minecraft project that's based out of Sweden. The team is based out of Sweden. Uh, and so I'm a developer on their squad. And then another team I'm working with is a Unity team. So Unity is a popular game engine and the code is written in C Sharp. Uh, and that team is based in Northern California. And I work with all three asynchronously so i don't have a a set schedule where, where i'm doing any one thing it's just i have these three things uh, that are on my plate and whenever i whenever i want to do one i can do that <laughs> oh that works out so yeah you're, you you make you make your own schedule yeah yeah my schedule is totally my own these days that's great and so you're just doing the podcast for fun yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm doing the podcast because and I've started recording uh, just so you know, though, I'm recording this bit as well. Uh, I started the podcast because I finished reading a book called Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. And in Democracy in Chains, she outlines exactly what has happened to the American right, the philosophical base of the American right over the past 40 years, 60 years, really. Uh, and it laid out exactly what I was pushing against from the American left without really knowing what it was, this nebulous force coming from the right that I knew I was against, but I didn't know how to put my finger on it. And what it was, was this thinker named James Buchanan. And he was a, he came about during the time of Brown versus the Board of Education, uh, where a lot of conservatives in the American South really didn't want black people to uh, mix their schools. They really didn't want integration, uh, but they were trying to figure out how to go about it. And what James Buchanan did was he said, well, let me re-articulate our opposition to racial integration as a concerted effort for states' rights. And he really authored all of those talking points around states' rights, lower taxes, uh, neighborhood funded. All this code uh, came from his thinking about how to keep blacks at bay without using the actual language to keep blacks at bay. Uh, and, and one thing that he did in that effort was he said that it is not the right of any majority to tell minorities what they have to do with their resources or their time or their money. Now, on the first pass, you go, that's kind of agreeable. But he was referring to the majority as the voting populace. And he was referring to the minority as wealthy landowners. And so he said there's nothing that any voting populace should be able to do that would override what landowners want to do with their resources. And that was the way he and that that sentiment still captures uh, the American libertarian, the libertarian movement. Uh, it captured the Koch brothers uh, and their movement and uh, the what's the name of their foundation? I forget the name of it now, but they have several foundations, but all of their foundations, that's what their thought is based on. And when I realized that, learned that, that really brought my philosophy full circle for what I knew I wanted to do with my my thought and my efforts. And I said, let me start putting it on, on wax, so to speak. <laughs> and that's why I started the podcast. Okay, so basically what you said was... Um... Something about voting is based on the landowners. Yeah. Yeah. James Buchanan decided that he didn't want wealthy property owners and landowners to be beholden to democracy. 
essentially. Uh, he did, he said, if I'm if I'm someone who has founded, let's say my grandfather founded a business uh, and this business turned into an international business by the time he got to my hands and I just happened to inherit, let's say, $150 million in net worth and a business that's worth upwards of a billion dollars on any given year, then really there's nothing any 60%, 65%, 70% of voting people in my state should be able to do against my fortune. So they shouldn't be able to vote and say, tax this guy. They shouldn't be able to vote and say, do something to regulate this guy. There's really nothing they should be able to do to stop me from paying my workers whatever I can pay, as little as I can pay, or or dumping my waste wherever I can dump it, wherever it's convenient for me. Um, he, and he came up with these ideas in the context of Brown versus the Board of Education. He came up with these ideas in the context of keeping black people black people separate. But this type of thinking is what has given us rise, has given rise to the robust American right, this robust libertarian right that says individualism, uh, this is their definition of individualism, individual rights at all costs. And individuals include uh, Jeff Bezos post with his hundred billion dollars that there's nothing the 70 percent of the 70 percent of us want to do something like tax Bezos. Uh, James Buchanan argued that there's, that there's really nothing we should be able to do. Uh, and that's what I just that's a philosophy that I discovered I was against. OK. So it, it, it's just back to the the wealthy control everything. That's right. That's right. And, yeah. and he, he was he didn't. Yeah, he didn't want to. Check. He didn't see a problem in unchecked buying power, uh, but I do. Uh, and I think we do. We as people who live in Southern California. Now, I don't know. Where did you were you born in Southern California? No, no, I was born in the South, the segregated South in Alabama. Hmm. So you were there. <laughs> well, I was born there and hmm. then actually. I came to California as, as a baby. I mean, a real baby. Okay. Actually, uh, when I came to California, I was just old enough to travel, like six weeks old. But oh, wow. I have gone back and I have lots of relatives still there. And, you know, um, that's where my roots are and that's where my parents are from. You know, I'm their oldest child. So everybody else was born in California. I'm the only one that was not. And so... Even though, uh, you know, I didn't grow up there and I've been back there and heard enough stories and read enough stuff in history to to know that, you know, um, segregation was real. I mean, mm. I was born to my grandmother's house, my mother's mother's house, because the hospitals near where I was born um, were not integrated. Mm. And, and so my mother would have had to travel, you know, I don't know, an hour or two to have a baby. So I was just born in my grandmother's house. So. That's kind of a nice um, legacy to say I was born in my grandmother's house and she was born in 1900, my grandmother. Hmm. As a matter of fact, my grandmother told my mother that when she was a young girl, and really she was a teenager now that I think about it, that everybody died. I mean, everybody around her was dying of the flu. So that would be right because um, the Spanish flu was in, was it, was it 1918 or something? I don't know. Yeah. You know, that was the last serious pandemic. My grandmother lived through that. And so she would tell my mother stories of, you wow. know, like I said, she was 18 or 19. So, of course, she can remember she wasn't a baby when it happened. She said everybody started dying and it was the flu. Everybody just wiped out everybody. 
And, you know, my Terrible. grandmother lived through it, obviously, but she remembers it. You know, my mother told me that story. So, you know, I know that there was a pandemic before this one. I knew it from word of mouth. And then, of course, now I know it because they talk about it. That, I mean, I, to, to what I've been telling people here the past couple of years is that really we have experienced pandemic light. Uh, and it's fortunate that we've experienced pandemic light, not to make light of the many millions of lives that were lost. But as you pointed out, the last pandemic was much, much, much more deadly. Uh, but had this coronavirus been more deadly than it is, we wouldn't have got it right. Uh, we might have lost upwards of, of, I don't know, 80 million or more or, or more than that. So uh, we got to get back on our toes if we want to do well for when that big bug hits. Yeah, and then it's interesting that pandemic has been, you know, I haven't done a lot of research or if any research on it, but, you know, the pandemic has been predicted for a while, and I guess we weren't ready. No, no, we weren't, weren't, weren't ready by any stretch. What was your, what were your career lineage? What did your grandmother do? What did your mother do? My grandmother, well, you know, my grandmother was just mainly a, um, what do you call it, a, mainly a... Um, a housewife, you know, in those mm. days, in the early 1900s, you know, there, a lot of women weren't working outside of the home. Now, my mother worked outside of the home, but her mother, as far as I know, did not. Mm. You know, they did. They were just, her husband worked outside of the home, my grandfather. But my my grandmother, you know, they just, you know, they lived on a farm. Hmm. And raised, raised the farm. And, and yeah, you know, they had, you know, they they they. Uh, you know, they, they went to the store. They had stores. But, I mean, you know, they uh, they cooked, you know, fresh fruit that they raised. And, you know, and if they wanted chicken, <laughs> you know, they, they, they had chickens that they raised and ate. And I remember that when I'd go back and visit. What did your dad do? My dad or my granddad? Your dad. I was thinking of Mr. T. Oh, my father... Uh, was in, he was always in construction. Hmm. Worked for, uh, you know, he, my father always worked outside because he always, um, you know, uh, I don't know. He, he always worked on buildings. Like um, when I was growing up, I remember him working at UCLA, as a matter of fact. He, you know, when we'd visit UCLA, he would say, you know, I helped build this building. He was always in construction. Hmm. That's so cool. Did you get your work ethic from him? Um, I don't know. Now, my mother worked. I thought you asked me first about my grandmother. My mother worked outside of the house. My grandmother raised her children. Mm. But mm. my mother did work. My my mother worked, you know. Um, she worked nights so that she wouldn't need a babysitter. Mm. Um, you know, she did different things. She worked in manufacturing. And when I was little, she told me she was a, um, a waitress. She did all kinds of things. My mother went to college, actually. But when she came to California... I was a newborn and she wasn't familiar with California. So she would get little jobs where she wouldn't have to pay for babysitters. Mm. So if she worked as a waitress, she could make her own hours and my father could watch me. You know what I mean? She didn't have a lot of babysitters. Mm. Uh, and then, um, let's say, um, she had jobs where she worked at night. And I can remember when I was in high school and when I was in middle school, my mother worked at night, you know, and, um, you know, in, in, in manufacturing work, like in factories and industry. Then when I went to college, she stopped that and she started working for the schools. 
So actually, my mother worked for Compton Unified School District. Oh, really? And yeah, and she was a um, it was called a community I don't know a community liaison or something, which meant she had to you know find out what the issues were in the school, and she had to go and visit um, homes. You know, like students who were in special ed. Hmm. You know, maybe they had problems, and you know, you know nowadays it's a little different. You know, they have goals and objectives and an IEP, you know, an individual learning plan and all kind of legislation and laws. But when my mother was doing it, I, I don't think it was quite as extensive as it is now. So when students had problems, special ed students or students in the regular um, program, she would go out and make home visits. Or if, if a kid had a problem, she would take kids home. Do you know what I mean? She she was she worked with the community. She was the li- liaison from the community and the school. But she, you know, but her job was working and she did that because she only worked, you know, like a teacher's hours. You know, mm-hmm. like teachers go to work like, what is it, 8 to 2 or 8 to 3? So my mother did that because she had children and, you know, wanted to get home. So she would go home when her kids went home. So and she worked school. So she did that for a while. Then after all her kids graduated high school and went to college, she um, she got a job in retail. But she was the store trainer. So in those days, Sears, and you know, Sears is almost all gone now. But in those days, Sears had in the basement a classroom. So when you wanted, when you became a um, a cashier or whatever, you know, you got the, the job at, at the department store. My mother had a classroom, and she was the store trainer. And that was her last job that she retired from. Hmm. Were you guys in Compton when you were? When did you grow up in Compton specifically? Mm-hmm. No, no. I always lived in what they refer to as South Central. I lived in South L.A., hmm. but my neighborhood bordered Compton and Gardena. So in other words, um, I lived near Rosecrans. I lived near Rosecrans, but if I had lived on the other side of Rosecrans, I would have been living in Compton. I lived on the I lived on the north side of Rosecrans, so that's Los Angeles. If you live on the south side of Rosecrans, it's Compton. So I bordered Compton. Hmm. And so actually the schools were called, uh, in the old days, it was called Enterprise Unified School District. But by the time I graduated, it was called Compton Unified. So I went to Centennial High, which uh, actually Centennial High is, it looks like it's in Los Angeles. I don't know what the address is. It, It may be considered Compton, but Centennial is on the corner of Central and El Segundo. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Centennial High, which was a, a Compton school, but I never lived in the city of Compton. My address was always Los Angeles. And then if I crossed the street a few blocks over, I would I would be in Gardena. Do you know what I mean? Was the neighborhood dangerous when you were coming up? Mm, I don't think so, oh, because this is why I don't think it was. You know, my mother sent me to the store you know, when she needed something, you, you know, we had a store near us, you know, that was a market. I, mm-hmm. We lived near a market. And I mean, it was very close. It was like, I don't know, two blocks, if it was that far. I don't even think it was considered two blocks away, but about two blocks away. There was a market. So if my mother needed steak or chicken or vegetables or fruit or say she needed something for dinner. She could just send me to the market. You know, I didn't have, she didn't have to go to the grocery store because mm-hmm. we lived at a we lived near a store that had food like a grocery store so she could send me there and so i could go there as a child by myself i mean and i could you know i could walk to school by myself and 
you know, elementary, middle school and high school, I could, I could walk to school. And um, I don't know, we weren't worried about, you know, because gangs weren't, well, they weren't as prevalent. Maybe they were around, but, you know, not in my neighborhood, and mm-hmm. not at Centennial High School. You know, it got worse. I remember when it started getting worse. It got worse uh, maybe when I was in college. You know, the people started talking about gangs. Was that and about nineteen ninety one? Nineteen ninety one? Oh no, no, no. Uh wait a minute. I don't know when the gang started, but I'm saying when I got when I be, went to college, I went to college in the seventies. Okay. <laughs> when I went to college, you started hearing about more problems. Hmm. Now I don't know. Maybe they got really, really worse in the nineties. You know what I mean? Maybe maybe it was worse in the nineties because I remember my own kids. I was very careful about where they went because it was dangerous and it's dangerous now. And now it's just not dangerous because of gangs. I mean, it's, you could live in a rich area or a poor area. You see the news, you could be shot anywhere mm-hmm. in Costco. You could be shot having lunch at Beverly Hills. You could be, I guess because maybe everybody has guns now, or maybe we're just more violent. I don't know. You know, you could be shot having, uh, what is it? Having a meal outside in Beverly Hills. You know what I mean? Well, part of it is, so this, I think the level of random violence is as low now as it's ever been, but the the uh, capturing of random violence is astronomical. Uh, there was never a time where we knew every act of every random act of violence that was happening around us historically, but now we do. Now we know everything that's happening, and so I don't think it's any. Any worse than it said? These are these are the numbers that I've heard. I've heard that now now is as safe a time uh, as ever to walk around a lot of these areas. It's just that it doesn't seem that way because the information travels so fast. Yeah, well, maybe that's true. What was it know. like? And you're right. You're real white. You're right. When I was growing up, you know, I didn't have a computer in the home. As a matter of fact, when I went to college, we were still typing term papers on um, uh, typewriters. What was nobody, it like nobody. coming up uh, oldest? Were you were you guiding your siblings? Um, I guess I was. Um, you know, we weren't close in age because my brother was next to me, and he was four years younger. Which means mm-hmm. when I was in sixth grade, he was only in second grade, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I knew who his friends were, but I mean, I you know, I didn't interact with any of his yeah. friends i was in fifth grade when he was in second grade 16 so year actually, olds don't I, hang out with 12 year olds right right and so like i don't know after i got older much older I, i'd run into some of my high school friends and i might mention my brothers and sisters and they would say they didn't know i had brothers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you know they didn't go to middle school or high school with me do you know what i mean okay okay yeah when did you, so that's so see that's so such a contrast because I grew up not four what four neighborhoods over <laughs> from that. I grew up in, in the grandma's house neighborhood, right? So the Davis neighborhood of uh, of Compton, and I couldn't go on certain blocks. That was that was the characteristic of my coming up. Uh, I knew where I couldn't couldn't go. I knew what I couldn't couldn't wear. Uh, it was a rule where you couldn't couldn't go. Right, right. And what? And you're talking about the '90s. That would be yeah. That's early '90s. Right, right. And see, when I was growing up, there was no such thing about, no such thing as gang colors. You know what I mean? You could wear any color you wanted. You know what I mean? Hmm. What was it that made you want to teach? Um, I think I've always wanted to be a teacher. I, When I was a little child, I played, you know, 
when we say, what do you want to play? I say, we want to play school. Hmm. So I've been playing school for over 40 years. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, that's all I've ever wanted to do is be a teacher. And, and uh, you know, I've had other jobs, of course. I mean, I've, I've, I've you know, I've done retail like in the summer part time, you know, like if like maybe at the end of high school or, you know, in the summers when I was in college or even when I was in college, I had other jobs. But once I graduated from college, I became a teacher. I uh, see. I graduated from college in May and I became a teacher that September. So I became a teacher at a private school. So I taught second grade at a Lutheran school. And I think the reason may have been in those days, you could get a job at a private school easier than a public school. Hmm. You know, because you didn't need a, all your full credentials. And I don't know. You, the hiring process wasn't what it is now to be a teacher, you know, in, in a in a private school. You know, what I mean, the operation is smaller. Do you know what I mean? No, not really. OK, well, you know, in public school, it, it, you got to go through a lot of. Um, the application process is is more complex than it would be applying to a, a private school. Do you know OK, what I mean? OK. Most private schools, I, I would think all of them, you have to have a teaching credential. You can't just walk in off the street and say. Can I be a teacher here? Mm. I, mean, I don't think you can do that. But it's not as quite a, as rigorous. You know what I mean? Like some colleges, the application process is more rigorous than other colleges. That makes sense. So, yeah. So the public school uh, teachers have more um, have more requirements. Now, it may be getting closer to now that uh, private schools are similar, but private school teachers normally make less than, you know, public schools. You know, because public school teachers are, you know, they're funded by the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think and I think our school. teachers are horribly undervalued. Uh, it's my understanding that the Japanese treat education much more like they treat and we treat medicine. They see that as a related field. It's a it's a calling that people who are called to it are doing a tremendous public good. And it's in all of our interest that those people be highly trained. Uh, very skilled and monetarily rewarded for their efforts. And so doctors in J I mean, teachers in Japan are paid very similar to doctors and they're culturally, they occupy a similar position. Uh, if your doctor calls, for instance, you answer the phone right away, you'll walk out of some meetings if your doctors calls you on the phone. And it's the same for teachers. If someone's sixth grade, you know, if their child's sixth grade teacher calls, they, they'll stop a meeting. They'll walk out of a meeting and say, Oh, what's going on? What's going on? What's happening? Uh, and they're like, I said, they're paid similarly, but here in the States, uh, we treat teachers as if they're cashiers at, at KFC, as if we can just replace them and, and they should be fighting and scratching for every penny they get. Uh, I think it's abhorrible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I've always read that about school, you know, in Asian countries. Now, I have visited schools in China and I visited schools in, uh, where else did I go? I went to India. So those are in Asia. I was lucky enough to go to China and India and visit schools um, because when I was a principal, um, I wrote a grant. You know, I, I had people help me. We collaborated on a grant to get computer equipment, hmm. and it was from HP Computers. And, you know, they gave us uh, the money for training wasn't a lot of money. So the teachers got stipends if you... If you were awarded a grant, your teachers got stipends to um, for training, you know, on, on, on new computer programs and, and uh, okay. hardware. 
But anyway, so my school was awarded a a grant from HP Computers. Well, so they gave me like um, I had uh, laptops, I had desktops, I had printers. They gave me lots of equipment. That was part of the grant. Hmm. Now, part of the grant also was that you were supposed to connect with a college, and that was easy for me because my high school is located on a college campus. So that was easy. And then you had to connect with um, a school in another country. So I was able to do that. But after being awarded the grant and all the equipment, they said, now you have to present in India. I had no idea that was part of the grant. So I, you know, I had a trip to India. They, they funded me to go to India. So no that, fun. Yeah, so that was quite an experience. Um, so I got to go to India and, and present, you know, information about my um, program and teacher training for um, computers and technology. And then China also um, was a free trip for me because after I retired, one of the parents is um, very active in a Chinese um not a Chinese public school. It's more of a Chinese uh, a private group. Hmm. But the parent, you know, this parent who happens to be Chinese, he just knew me as a principal and they wanted to do some connections with uh, the United States and China. So he asked me if I was interested. Hmm. So at first I thought, well, no, I don't speak Chinese. I don't think so. And he said, listen, these are, they're called international schools. So they, so they speak Chinese and other languages, including English. So he said, you know, we will fly you to China if you can present some workshops to Chinese schools and help us with some partnerships with colleges. Hmm. And so I was able to do that, and I got a all-expense trip to China, and I went to Beijing, and I went to Chengdu, um, you know, where the pandas are. So I got to go to the Great Wall. So all those things happened to me because I was in education. Where is the that uh, project located? Is it located in the mainland China, the the campus? It's located in China, and there's several schools, you know, that are connected uh, uh, with this group. But mm. um, they have an office here in um, San Gabriel. It's near uh it's not san gabriel i think it's near pasadena um so they have an office here and they pay me as a consultant so in that role you know i had provided some training for schools in china to be um accredited through the u.s Hmm. and so what i was able to do is just just because i've been in education so long you know i know lots of teachers and lots of schools so i was able to connect with you know colleagues and peers and friends to help me put together um curriculum you know for the chinese schools see i think that's so so xi jinping uh his thought is so forward-leaning and so progressive and helpful uh to the chinese culture because he has recognized he says look china although we are a, a wonderful deep rich and beautiful culture uh, we are not leading the world in all things and those things in which we aren't leading the world we need to learn from the best 
And so I'm assuming that this this uh, initiative that you were part of was part of uh, Xi Jinping realizing that China, their education system, specifically their public education system, could use and learn a thing or two from the U.S. public education system. Uh, now, what we need to do is recognize the same thing. I feel towards the Nordic countries and towards France. Uh, from what I saw, I saw in Michael Moore's, I don't know what it's called, the next great battle or something like that, where he, he goes to French schools. Oh, he's called where to invade next. Uh, and he goes to these French schools and he sits there and, and a public school and they have this lunch and they have, uh, dinnerware set out and they have manners and they take an hour for lunch in elementary school and they have, and it's part of a class where they showed them how to have dinner and uh the everything's ultra high tech and uh he said why how is this the case how are your public schools this well funded well what they've done over there is they have the rich kids in the public school they don't have them separated off in private schools and what that does is that the rich parents make sure that those kids are getting a high quality education. And so the poor kids are just able to ride the coattails and be be free riders on what the rich kids are making sure that their kids are partic- participating in. Uh, I feel like we could do that to go a little bit further forward. Uh, I, I th- oh, yeah. Yeah, I think we're a little bit I think we're a little bit arrogant in the United States in our education system. Do, have, have you seen anything like that from the inside or am I way off or? No, I, I, I think that's right. Like I said, you know, I'm visiting China and I still have a connection uh, with, with this Chinese educational group. You're right. I also was able to visit education in Cuba. Hmm. And uh, what's interesting about Cuba is, you know, education is free and college is free. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, you know, in Cuba, uh, salaries, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know. The salaries in Cuba are... You know, uh, you know. I, I guess it's more uh, socialist type country, so that um, you know, a doctor can be making, I don't know, the same salary as a taxi driver. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Because they just they dictate the wages based on what fairness uh, from the top, right. top down fairness. Right. 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 Yeah. No. So. Cap- capitalism. <laughs> capitalism is a much better system than than top down fairness. Uh, what type right. of student were you in elementary? Were you always studious? Were were you? Oh no, no. Mm. I think I think I was an average student. I think, um, see, I, you know, I did my work. I never got in trouble. I was, you know, they say that's true of the oldest child. They they say that most people who are the oldest in their family, you know, birth birth according to birth order, that the oldest tim, 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 tends to be more like their parents, mm. or they're more. Um, you know, they're like little adults or they're more conservative. Mm. So I think I, I that's not true, you know, for every child that's the oldest. But I, I think it was true for me. I um like I said, the the child next to me was four years younger, which was a boy. So, you know, we didn't play together or have the same friend. Mm. And then the next child was seven years younger than me. So think about that. You know, when I was seventeen, she was ten. Mm. So um, you know, I was the babysitter and I was the I was around adults more. Well, mm. whereas my brothers and sisters, you know, they got to play with one another more. Do you know what I mean? Do you feel like you missed out on a childhood? Mm, because I was more of a nurturer and the babysitter. I, mm. I don't think so. Mm. You know, because I still had to go through, you know, the um, K through 12 experience. So, you know, I had friends and neighbors and cousins. I had lots of cousins. And so, you know, I was always with um, other children. 
It's just that I think I was more adult-like because, you know, my brothers and sisters, I was more like their babysitter. Mm. You know, my youngest sister is like 14 years younger than me. So, you know, I didn't, you know, have any interaction with her other than her babysitter. But so, so as a child, um, I think I was just average, um, although I did get into college and high school. So maybe I was a little better than average. You know, I would consider myself average, but maybe I was better than average because, you know, I did go to college, graduate in four years, you know, which that's the way it was in those days. You know, by the time my kids went to college, you know, they were saying that most kids graduated, you know, five years or more because mm. it's just different. It's more expensive and, and all of the courses are not always available that you need to graduate and, you know, on and on and on. So I did graduate in four years and I became a teacher that September after I graduated and I was lucky enough to get a credential in teaching. Oh, and in those days, the credentials were kindergarten through ninth grade was the elementary credential. And then the high school credential was considered 10th through 12th grade. But they've changed it. The credentials are not like that. Anymore. Hmm. You know, now, you know, now because it's not junior high. Because when I was growing up, junior high was seventh, eighth, and ninth. And then, you know, they've changed it. It's not called junior high. It's called middle school. Mm -hmm. So middle school is more six to eight. Mm -hmm. So they've changed it where when you go to college, if you want to teach grades six through 12, you're a secondary. And if you want to teach elementary, it's kindergarten through fifth. But in my case, I got a credential that allowed me to teach kindergarten through ninth grade, which they don't issue that credential. So I got a credential that allowed me to teach kindergarten through ninth grade. But when I graduated, um, the demand for teachers wasn't there. You know, it changes, you know, supply and demand changes, you know, according to the time period. But mm. when I graduated from college, um, that was the first year they started things like long-term subbing, temporary contract, uh, semester to semester contract. Before that, when they really needed teachers, you got a contract automatically. But when I graduated from college, the supply for teachers um, or the demand for teachers was low. So I went back to school and picked up somehow. I, I, I picked up a, a secondary credential. So I had credentials for elementary and secondary. Um, I did that. So I was lucky enough to teach K through 12. Did you get involved with the hippie scene at all? Um, it was going on, but you know, the hippie, I think the hippie real scene was more like, you know, in Northern California, like Berkeley, mm. you know, that's where, you know, the Black Panthers, and, you know, things like that happen in Northern California. But, you know, the hippies, I'm not sure I was a hippie. I don't think I was. I think I was too conservative to be a hippie. What did you I, like to do in high school? What did you do for fun? You won't believe this, but it's the truth. I was a member of the Futures Teachers Society. <laughs> so I always wanted to be a teacher. Always. I know it's funny. I've never, you know, deviated from my goal in being a teacher, and I'm still hmm. a teacher. But, but that long story I was telling you was, so I taught K through 12. Not Not everybody does that. You know, like some people want to be a secondary teacher, like my daughter, you know, um, she just teaches all her teaching experience have been uh, middle school or high school. Right. Because mm -hmm. her credential is secondary. Mm -hmm. Well, I was lucky enough to get I got that elementary credential and then I went back to school. Oh, that's why. Because 
I was hired to teach junior high, which mm. I was never interested in. I was mm. only interested in elementary. But I taught junior high, and my friends and colleagues who were teaching junior high said, don't you want to teach high school? And I said, well, I can't teach high school. Uh, uh, you know, my credentials to ninth grade. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, if you teach high school, you'll really like it. So I like school so much. I was, you know, I got a master's and I picked up another credential. So then I did get a credential for high school. And then I, so, so I've taught, you know, in, in grades kindergarten through 12th grade, literally. I mean, I taught kindergarten. I taught, I student taught first grade. I taught second grade. I taught third grade. I don't think I ever taught fourth or fifth, but I've subbed in those grades. Middle school I've taught. Um, so I've taught six through eight. In high school, I taught English. So in high school, I taught mainly 10th grade English and 9th grade English. And Oh, wait a minute. I taught drama. I forgot. So I have taught all grades in high school. How so, would you um, say the industry has changed over the course of your career? Uh, I, I would say that today, to be absolutely honest, uh, me and my wife are thinking about how to keep our kids as far away from public school as possible. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that was always the case uh, in our culture here. How do you think it's changed over the years? Um, you're right. I'm going to even go back to my own children. Now, when mm. my children were growing up, I kept them in public school because, because I believe in public school. I'm a public school teacher. I, I went to public school. There's nothing wrong with public school. Now, the public schools are not all equal. Mm. I mean, I realize that. But I was lucky enough to, when my kids grew up, I, I was teaching in Long Beach Unified. And I, you know, and I believe in Long Beach Unified. Now, all the schools in Long Beach Unified are not necessarily equal, but the areas in Long Beach are very broad. So you could live downtown Long Beach, you know, and, and work in an inner city school in Long Beach. Or you could work in a school in East Long Beach, which borders Orange County. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not saying, you know, which school I'd rather work at. But I'm just saying that they were different. You know, the schools were different. And so I I believed in Long Beach. So uh, my kids went to the same school district where I worked. Uh, if I Maybe if I lived somewhere else or, or, you know what, maybe if I wasn't a teacher working in Long Beach, maybe I would have thought about private school. But. I didn't think I needed to spend the money for private school education. What and is so a what is a trick if we've got a uh, fourth grade teacher listening and an eleventh grade teacher listening? Uh, what are some some overlaps and differences that they would need to know to get through their work day and do a good job? Um, because I've taught both of those, you know, age levels. Um, hmm. Well, I guess for elementary, you know, the elementary teacher, um, and I learned this when I went from elementary to middle school teacher, the elementary teacher, you know, it needs to, I guess, be an expert in all subject areas because you're teaching all the subjects. Hmm. Now, you have to remember that, you know, attention spans, um, you know, you know, are not very long. So, you know, you teach them in chunks in elementary school, you know, maybe... You know, you could teach math for an hour, but you have to break it up because maybe you're doing cooperative groups in math or maybe they're working alone for a while. or Maybe it's teacher directed. So you have to break it all up. Although I think that still works for high school to keep students motivated. You want to you want to make it relevant. You want to make it meaningful. You want to make it motivating. So I really think that works for 
elementary and high school, you, you got to make the subject matter interesting and relatable to. So that that's mm. number one. Otherwise, that's how you get the behavior problem in elementary or high school. Because kids aren't engaged, and so they're just kind of irritated, and they're just letting their energy go where it may. Right, right. So, um, you know, so that works for both levels. And interesting enough, I um, that made me think about a class I teach, and I'm teaching that class in a, in a couple of weeks, and I've taught it before. It's classroom management. And those kind of things come up, you, you know, if you make your subjects interesting enough and, you know, whatever the subject matter is, you know, math, reading, whatever, you got to make it interesting and exciting and somehow relatable to their own experiences. You know, most kids will, will not um, cause problems, but I said most, not all. You're mm. always going to have someone that you know, that's, that's not going to listen or be distracted or um, cause problems. Now, but I guess you have to be caring and sensitive because sometimes kids, as you know, cause problems because, you know, we have no idea what it was like in their house last night. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They're in school with me today and I say, you know, goodbye, see you tomorrow. Well, between... 3 p.m. when I said goodbye, and the next time I see them at 8 a.m., I don't know what they've been exposed to or what they've seen, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, or how mm -hmm. they've been treated. So, you know, you don't know which kids are, well, not always, which kids are homeless, which kids are being abused, which kids are, um, you know, being exposed to trauma. So I would imagine so, that really comes into play when you're thinking about discipline if you're in the front of the class trying to let's say orchestrate a group chat and there's some kid who just continues to make jokes and be disruptive and be a problem you've got to think about why that kid is doing that you can't just there isn't a once i would imagine and tell me where if, if you know where this track actually goes in practice i would imagine there's not a one-size-fits-all discipline strategy no but you have to have rules, you know, you got to set down, you know, guidelines for rules. And mm. I don't know, all those years of my teaching, I don't think I was very, very um, strict. You know, there's some teachers and it works for them. It, it, and also, you're, I, I don't know, it, it's about the kids, it's not about you. But sometimes, you know, you have a disciplinarian as a teacher and the teacher comes in uh, very organized, very strict. And, you know, this is the way it's going to be. And, mm. you know, there's no flexibility. But but that wasn't my personality. And and you have to look at the personality of your classroom. So you have to do what works for you. But you, but you need to start with rules. You know, like, you know, you're not allowed to just, I don't know, get up out of your seat and leave the classroom to go to the restroom without permission. Mm. You're not allowed to, you know, just roam the classroom as you please. You're not allowed to distract others. So you do need to start the school year with, rules and regulation but what they're doing now especially I noticed during the pandemic so last fall fall 2020 I heard uh, or I was aware of and that a lot of school districts just started the or maybe I mean I was aware of quite a few school districts because I also I don't know how I do all these things I think it's because I'm old I also um, I'm a coach for administrators hmm. and 
through that, I realized, you know, it, it keeps me current of what's going on in the school districts, too. Hmm. So in the fall, the districts that I was working for, um, and so maybe most districts did this in the fall. Rather than starting off the year with um, a lot of content area work, like starting with math or science or English, the first two weeks were um, social emotional learning. That was setting the kids, you know, setting the stage for how to get along with one another, mm. how to treat one another. Mm. You know, so it wasn't that common idea of rules and regulations, even though you know respect is part of that. But it was more of you know how do you treat you know how do you treat one another, uh, or giving children scenarios of if this happens to you, how do you respond? You know, talking about I statements and um, dialoguing, just getting to know one another and respecting one another. And mm. so it was, it was labeled social emotional learning. And so the school year last fall was started that way at most districts that I'm aware of. Just, you know, because one, they had to learn how to be, you know, I guess they were online the spring before, but, you know, reacquaint with, reacquaint them with, you know, protocol on using Zoom or Google Classroom and being online. So, you know, all, you know, in the old days, maybe we labeled that rules and regulations, but now it was, it was more of, um, you know, social emotional learning or well, expectation. I can, I can testify to the fact that online behavior uh, is beyond the pale when it comes to how horrible kids are willing uh, and practice being to each other. And so uh, that baseline, if you're going to do anything online with anybody younger than 25, uh, I think that's a good place to start to say, look, this is not your average online anonymous say whatever crap comes to your mind as mean as you can possibly be for them. Uh, this is not the place for that. This is a different place. Right, right. And, and, and teachers had to learn do dis uh, they had to learn new disciplinary measures you know so how you relate to the students online it, it, it it's different than you know in person learning hmm. so um, do you think it's as effective um i'm going to say no because i think in person is always better hmm. you know i mean you're able I mean, the advantage of being online or, or using a Zoom platform is that you're still able to communicate, you know, regardless to the pandemic or otherwise. But um, classroom teaching, it, it's doable because, you know, teachers learn how to um, convey material and um, uh, they learn how to, they learn instructional practices that work for students online. So mm. just as I mentioned earlier that you have to, um, I don't know if I said it this way, you have to vary instruction. You know, you just don't stand in front of the room. Of, you don't stand in front of the room of elementary students or high school students and just lecture for an hour. Do you know what mm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it, it's boring and not all students learn that way. Um, you know, you, you lose them. You know, you, you can even lose adults that way. So you don't, you don't just stand there and it's... Um, all coming one way, the teachers providing uh, 
curriculum and the students are just sitting there like empty vessel. So that doesn't always work. You know, research has found that, you know, you, you need to, yes, there's a place for teacher instruction and, and lecturing and providing examples. Uh, but there's also a place for students to work among their friends, you know, like cooperatively. I can uh, tell you, I can tell you one of the things that I learned uh, a lot from, and I still carry it to the day. So I'm 37. So this is 20 years ago. Uh, we were in history class and we were broken up and we were given, we had a chapter that we had been reading for the pat for the couple weeks before it was about the American, I'm going to say expansion West, uh, I think post Louisiana purchase. Uh, but it, and so we were all tasked, we were sitting around a table and we were all assigned different roles uh, and we were having a meeting and the meeting was, what are we going to do about the Indian problem as it was phrased at the time? Uh, that, cause that's what it was called at the time, the Indian problem and a bunch of other things. And we were, we didn't know what role we were going to get. And so we had to understand where each person in, in this meeting might argue from. And then we were assigned the roles at random. Uh, and my teacher actually congratulated me for understanding it because there there was at one point where I hit the table with my fist and I said, by God, we're going to go coast to coast. And <laughs> she said, great job, Carl. You really understand uh, imminent domain or, or manif no, manifest destiny, I think was the concept that I understood that that's how Americans really felt at the time. Um, but I say that to say that that wasn't her just sitting up in front of the class talking. Uh, that was something that we actively participated in. Uh, and so it it really engaged me deeply that way. And I feel like active engagement uh, has got to be one of the best ways to do it. When I think about the, I want to say Norwegian, but I'm not certain that it's Norway. But I was watching their some elementary school kids do science. And all of their science classes are held in the forest by the river. They collect jars of things and they take them and look at microscopes and then they go out and they collect other jars and they dig in the dirt with their fingers. And of course, those kids are going to be much better than American kids at science because um, that's where the science is happening. Uh, there, there's, an, there's an entire world out there that you really got to get your hands on and interact with. Uh, you're not just going to learn it just from from a book. Now, you can get a precursor from a book, but if you really want to learn, in my, in my estimation, you really got to get hands-on, and you really got to get active. You got to do something uh, embodied. You have to embody the learning. Is there is there any sort of embodied learning strategy paradigm that you're familiar with? Yeah, well, you just described um, project-based learning. Hmm. And so in project-based learning, they use real-world projects, as you mentioned, what did you say? They were in the forest or something? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was hands-on. You're right, it was active. They were engaged. So let's say they're studying, I don't know, a particular plant in the forest. Uh, well, then they have to research it. You know what I mean? You have to look up and see what the research says about that particular plant. And then uh, maybe, um, you know, where is it normally located? You know, what kind of mm. environment is normally, you know, is it a wet, does it survive in a wet environment, a dry environment? Um, you know, what is, you know, when this plant is harvested, what could it be used for? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so it's hands-on, like you said, but they've got to use um, their research skills and they come up and it's, and it's a real world problem. So it's not just an experiment, uh, an example of, 
you know, um, ex experiment in the textbook, you know what I mean? Or a science project, it says, you know, they, they have a list of science projects and it says choose one and do one. Mm -hmm. it, it's not that. You're coming up based on your own interest. And it's, and it's real world applications is what you describe. Now, Elon Musk has put it forward that what we should actually be doing is instead of taking, let's say, let's say seven year olds and then moving them along with eight year olds and nine year olds and 10 year olds and doing this year age based type advancement, what we should be doing is taking seven-year-olds and just having them run the gambit at what they enjoy doing, what they're capable of doing, and then have them be at different aptitudes and different skills. Some might be particularly good at dance or science or math or art or reading or speaking or whatever, whatever the kid happen, happens to have an aptitude for, and then advance them in that skill that way if they're an advanced nine-year-old they aren't with other nine-year-olds in terms of let's say they're really in a really advanced reader well if they're a really advanced reader at nine they need to be reading with 12 year olds because they're advanced uh and if they're a really advanced math kid or or they're a really advanced artist then they need to be with other people at that same skill level despite their age and he says we would get so much more out of public education or any uh, human education actually not public or private uh by using that method what do you think of that idea is there is there merit there oh yeah so it sounds like having students performing according to their own uh level right mm. Mm. yeah well i think so because well, you know yourself as a student and, um, you know, I've seen with my own children and I guess myself growing up, you know, um, you know, why are you keeping me, you know, boxed in, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. when, I, when I'm ready, mm -hmm. when I'm ready to move up, you know, why, why, why must I, you know, stay in a level, uh, when I'm, you know, when I'm more advanced and, and it works both ways because why move a student to to read with the third graders who's still on the first grade level? Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's more um, mastery learning. What were what were your app? When was the first time you realized you had an aptitude for teaching? Um, well, I always liked it. And I, I'm just going to say this about myself because I started as an elementary teacher. My first teaching job was second grade and I had student taught first. And so actually, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, teaching second grade, I mean, you know, the, the textbooks for reading and math and science and health and art for second grade, you know, it didn't take a lot of effort on my time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, effort, effort for me because you know, you would think that I could do second grade work. I'm, I've graduated from college, right? Mm -hmm. So, so of course, I enjoyed that because, you know, it wasn't, I didn't have to stay up at, at night, you know, figuring out my lesson plans, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. But in teaching second and third grade and fourth grade and things like that, um, you see a variety of disciplines, right? So you're looking at everything. So I enjoyed that. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, it was fun to me. And even teaching kindergarten, I must say teaching kindergarten was um, also uh, actually um, a great experience because when you're absent as a teacher, and this is just kind of a joke, but it's true, when I miss a day of work as a 
teaching kindergarten, when I get back, the kids are like so relieved. Hmm. I don't know if they're they're relieved that I'm still alive or that I'm coming <laughs> back. They're like, oh, my God, where were you? You know, hmm. it's like, oh, thank God you're back. Whereas when you teach middle school, you know, those middle school kids are a little different. And I think not all of them, but I think a lot of them say to themselves, oh, no, there she is. She's back. Mm-hmm. You know, so kindergarten, they, they were more um, more innocent, I guess, and more. I don't know. They were just happy to see to see you return. So, so you know, that's a that you know. So when somebody asked me my favorite grade levels, and you said, you know, when did I realize I was a great teacher or a good teacher? My favorite grade levels, I guess, I really liked the really little kids. I liked all all my teaching. I, I can't think of a grade level I didn't like, but I really enjoyed kindergarten. And my, I don't. I, I guess when I started teaching, elementary was fine. When I moved to middle school, that was a new experience. But middle school has some other advantages, too. When I moved to middle school as an English teacher, I only had to be prepared for one subject. See, I was accustomed to looking at all the different textbooks for all the different subject areas. Once you become a so-called expert in teaching or a content area teacher, when you're teaching middle school and high school, you only have one textbook. Do you know what I mean? That's different from elementary. Hmm. Got one book. And then when you teach middle school, say I'm teaching eighth grade, I don't know, English. Well, I teach the same, practically the same lesson all day long, right? Because they you have period one, two, three, four, five, six. Mm-hmm. And they're all learning the same thing. Right. So you could become more of an expert in an area. Uh, English was my major, but you become more of an expert in that area because you're teaching basically, not exactly or identical, but you're teaching basically the same lesson over and over all day long. Mm. So you got to get better with it. Do you know what I mean? You know, the first time you teach, you might say, oh, you know, I, I didn't have enough time. So maybe in period one, I'm teaching whatever the lesson is. And I thought, oh, yeah, I ran out of time, you know, you know, or I didn't plan enough. So throughout the day, you know, you're changing your lesson plan a bit. You, you change it to fit your, your um, students at that time of the day. And you change it based on, because, you know, you, you've taught it twice. You've taught that same lesson, you know, period one and period two. So by period three, it's a little different, right? Because you know what works and what doesn't. When you're standing in front of a room full of room full of 12-year-olds, uh, how can you tell over the course of a day and let's say over the course of a semester or over the course of a school year, what what are the kids' developments like? How can can you tell who's going to be trouble, who's going to be good? What what are the what what do you see from the front of the class looking back out uh, for the against the kids? Well, you know, first day of school and second day of school is not always an indicator. Hmm. It is sometimes, but it's not always an indicator. But you're right. I mean, you see the students who are actively completing the assignments and and are on task compared to those who aren't. But, you know, I also taught um, adult school. Hmm. And um, that was very gratifying to me because when I attended their graduation, it was very emotional Hmm. because um, in those days to attend adult school meant that, you know, K through, what is it, the, the K through 12 system or the high school system didn't mm-hmm. work for you mm-hmm. and you had to finish your, um, 
you had to finish your diploma, you know, in, a, in another environment. And it was adult school. And so the, the students in adult school, I had no behavior problems because they were there because they wanted to be there. Hmm. I didn't have to. Um, I, there was no parent involvement. I didn't have to make phone calls home because they were already adults. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't have the discipline. Uh, I really didn't have discipline problems with those in adult schools. They came back because it was their second chance to get a diploma. So I was really, that was touching to me. So teaching adult school was touching. And the little babies, like I said, uh, kindergarten, first grade. And I've done all in between, but maybe my favorite ones were adult school and um, the little ones. Although when I was teaching high school, I had a student tell me once, um, he stayed after class and he said, you know, you know, you're not really a teacher. So I thought he meant that I was a bad teacher. Mm. <laughs> he said, you know, you, you really don't remind me of, of a teacher. And I said, no. And I thought, uh oh, you know, he means I'm inadequate or something. Mm. He said, no, no, you're, you're more of a mother. Mm. And so I took it as a compliment. So what I think he was saying was that, um, I don't know, maybe it's the way I treated him or the way I treated the students, you know, he said, um, you know, you, you, you didn't treat us like other teachers. You were more of a mother to us. Mm. So I don't know. I took it as a, I took it as a compliment because this was a, a basketball player, you know, big, tall, over six feet tall, you know, basketball player that came to me after class to tell me that, that he appreciated that. And then, you know, you never know what you're doing right. I mean, I remember teaching high school and I don't think I did it on purpose. I don't know how that happened. You know how you have teachers aides that, can sit at your desk and correct papers and help you with things. Uh huh. Well, I don't know how I ended up with guys who were problems in and outside of school became my, my teacher aides because mm. I remember a teacher <laughs> coming by to visit me to ask me a question or say something to me. And she said, Oh my God, what is he doing sitting at your desk? You know, like she was afraid of it. <laughs> and I said, Oh, he's my student worker. She said, What? So, I mean, he was a problem in the community mm -hmm. and in the school. Mm -hmm. But, but because maybe I gave him a purpose and I didn't know what I was doing at the time. But I, when I look back on it, I said, well, maybe I gave these uh, gang members a second chance. And I, and I treated them all the same. You know, because I, the problem, I, you know, this is not true of all problem students. But the problem students seem to, I don't know, most of the time, I'm not saying 100%, but most of the time, they seemed to do well with me. I think I treated everybody the same. And so other people who were afraid of students, those were my teacher aides and my teacher helpers. And they go, what? You know, well, and then I know there was another, there I was can, another student. I can attest uh, to the fact that you have a barometer for spirit and capability. Uh, and so that's what I would guess that you detected from them, that even that you said, albeit naively, you sensed their spirit and their capability. And you said, you know what? You're a, you're a, a leader. You're capable of being a leader. You're going to be my helper. <laughs> Regardless of what they you were what? doing I in other situations. Maybe you labeled it right. I think you're, I, that sounds right. I think maybe that was it. You know, even though they may have caused problems in class and outside in the community, once you channeled that energy in the right place, they were fine for me. And I do remember too, teaching middle school and, a student who had been to, I don't know, what is it called? Like juvenile hall or something. Mm. He's always in trouble with the law and other things. And I remember he did something again and they were take, kicking him out of school. 
And he told the office that I was the only teacher that he liked when he left. I mean, you know, they were taking him back into custody or something. I don't know. And he said, you know, make sure you let, you know, Mrs. Father know I said goodbye and that she was a great teacher and she's my favorite teacher. And they came and said, this kid, this problem child said, you're his favorite teacher. And I thought, I said, now what did I do to make him think I was, I never treated him special. Um, well, you, you did. Yeah, you did treat him special from, from his perspective. I can tell you that uh, if I've got any amount of fighting spirit in me, it's partly because of you. Uh, because you, you're like a, uh, you're like a heat shield on the bottom of a rocket ship where so that what that heat shield has to do is it has to redirect plasma so that it doesn't burn up the internal components and it has to read of the ship. So it has to redirect that plasma and there's not much that can stand up to that plasma. And that's kind of like what you do <laughs> when you detect someone's hot, someone's on fire, someone's got energy. You are right there with them. You've been right there with me saying you need to channel that. You need to point that in the right direction. Uh, and you help me do it. You lead by example. And so that's what, you know, that's what the world needs. And I, I, it's, it's actually courageous strength and it's the opposite of timidity. And what I've been learning as an adult uh, here the past several years is unfortunately most people are timid and it's just true. Uh, it's not necessarily bad. Uh, we've got to get along as a species. And if every, what is it? It's the, the nail that sticks up the highest is the first to get the hammer, right? There's a lot of truth in that. And so we need people who are willing to go with the flow and, and stay, stay, you know, go by the beat of the drum that everybody else is going by, stay in line, right? We need, we need a, a large amount of that, but there is a such thing as too much of that, especially in times like these, we need leaders uh, and you're a leader. And I feel like that's, you were probably just naturally uh, picking out leaders and that's what a lot of the young troublemakers in our communities are. They're just leaders that don't have the right channels. I think you're right. I never looked at it like that when you said redirect. And I appreciate that. Thank you for the compliment. I've never looked at it that way, but I appreciate your comments. And um, when you said I'm a leader, maybe it's because back to I was the oldest child. And, <laughs> you know, I said I was the babysitter. I was the mm. nurturer. You know, when my parents weren't, weren't home. I was in charge. And I never thought that is, I never thought about that as leadership experience, but I guess it was. And I don't know, I was, I'm also blessed that, you know, I was the principal of the highest performing school in the district. Hmm. And that's just a blessing. I don't think I, say this, I don't think I did anything out of the ordinary to get that position. It's just that I was a teacher. I taught all grade levels. I told you that, including mm. adult school. And, and then I ended up teaching college and I'm, you know, and speaking of leading by examples, um, and, 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 you know, uh, Mrs. Lasorte, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, she, and, you know, I'm just saying this for your listeners, you know, she's a family friend and she was a principal when she was, she was a teacher and a principal. So when she retired, she was a principal. So when I met her, was she already retired? Let me think. Uh, let me think hard. No, she wasn't retired. But she was probably close to retirement when she said to me, you know, um, they're giving money uh, for um, minorities and women. Hmm. So the women didn't have to be, you know, minorities. But, it's, but it was 
They had money, lots of money. The Cal State system had money for women and minorities. So hmm. you could, as long as you were a minority, you know, you could be a, ma- a male, but especially women, and they didn't have to be, uh, you know, minorities. But she said they're giving money for that population to become college professors. Hmm. You know, and here's the applic- application. Aren't you interested? Or are you interested? Mm-hmm. And I said in my mind, of course not. You know, I, I've been teaching for years. By that time, I was teaching high school. So I'd already taught middle school and elementary. And I had a master's. And I had my credentials for elementary and secondary. I thought that was enough, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know how old I was. I think it was in my late 30s. I, I was in my 30s. So, so I wasn't, I was still young. You know, 30s, you know, 30 is a baby. But so I wasn't even middle age. I was in my 30s. And she said, you know, here's an application. So she's a leader. And um, I guess I'm using her as my uh, role model, I guess, because she found that for me. Hmm. And she didn't find it for me. She gave the application to other people and me. It wasn't just me. And she said, you know, here's an application. They're giving money for people to go back to school. And I think she wasn't interested because maybe she was toward the end of her career and just, I don't know, maybe she because she could have done it, too. Hmm. Hmm. You know, she wasn't that old. When, you know, probably she was. I don't know, 50 at the most, maybe when she gave me that. I don't know. But anyway, she said, here's an application to go back to school and get your doctorate. And the Cal State system, in other words, the CSU system, will pay for you to go to the college of your choice, free of cost, Hmm. if you're selected to get a doctorate. And I said, that sounds good. But I but seriously, I wasn't interested, you know, in my mind, you know, I'm saying, no, I'm already a teacher. I'm happy. I have a master's. I'm not interested in going back to school. So I put that application. This is a true story. I put that application in the dresser drawer and ignored it, you know, because no, you know, maybe I had just finished my master's and I was tired. Hmm. You know what? See, I got my master's when I was like, maybe I was only 30. So I guess I shouldn't have been that tired. But anyway, (laughs) you know, I thought 30 year olds can feel tired. They don't know. They don't know how not tired they are, but they can feel tired. Right. So I was in my 30s. I had kids already. And I thought, no, no, I I got a teaching job. You know, I have. A, no, but but thank you. So I, I don't think I told her no. I think I just took the application and said, thank you. But in my mind, no, I'm not interested in going to school. Not again. You know, I am married with kids already and, you know, and I'm working. So I put it in the dresser drawer and I ignored it. And this is true. Then the next year, maybe I looked in that drawer again. It's a, it, it was a dresser drawer, which I don't look in much. I looked at it again. I really think the the year after she gave it to me. So I had it in the drawer for a year. I looked at it and I think I missed the application the second time around, you know, the due date. Mm. I said, oh, well, I put it back. So, I mean, this must have been destiny for me. I think the third year I pulled it out before the, the application due date and I filled it out. I don't know if I filled it out for fun or if I was really serious by then. Maybe I was just curious. I filled it out and I got accepted. Hmm. So I went to USC at no cost. I mean, can you imagine how much school costs now? Oh, yeah. I went to USC and I didn't pay any money to go. They sent me a check every year, the full tuition, full time for my doctorate. Hmm. And um, so I'm telling you that you do need guidance. You need, I guess, a role model. And so I always like to tell that story because if it wasn't for her, you know, I, w- I would have never thought to go back. You know, I'm already a teacher. I already have my credentials. What do I need now? Hmm. But, you know, maybe that's when I understood the value of lifelong learning. <laughs> I don't know. So 
I went back to school. I got that doctorate and then I was able to teach college. So, I mean, I've really been teaching college since like 94, hmm. maybe. I mean, a long time. What did you teach? And I can remember all the classes I taught. I taught. Like I said, when you're old, you know, the, the list is long. <laughs> so let me see. I'm going to tell you what I taught. You're going to be sorry you asked. And I probably won't even have all of them. I taught uh, administrators in educational administration. I taught um, psychology, educational psychology. Hmm. I taught multiple uh, multicultural perspectives. I've taught English methods for secondary teaching. What else have I? I've taught early childhood education. You know, if I started teaching in 94, it's quite a few courses. That's true. Uh, and I and I've uh, taught student teacher, and you know what? That's really one of the the best jobs I've ever had, student teacher. Really? Because I get to watch them teach, and I've done this like I told you online. I get to watch them teach, take notes, and then I give them feedback on their teaching. But it also keeps me current because you know teaching has changed over the years. What's a what's a common mistake that a lot of rookie student teachers make? A common mistake might be not slowing down and making sure that the students understand. So that that's called checking for understanding. Hmm. That's a part of, um, you know, good lesson planning, good lesson planning. You have to check for understanding, you know, so a typical lesson plan and doesn't always go in this order, but you know, you, you've got to look at the California standards, you know, you got to make it standard based and you don't have to worry about that because most textbooks, you know, are standard based. Hmm. So you're not just speaking off the top of your head. You pick up a math book and maybe the second grade uh, standards for math are, I don't know, multiplication, a review of addition and subtraction, fractions, decimals, you know, whatever it is they do in second grade for math. Okay, well, the books are standards based. So you you, you set the students up to learn the um, whatever your objective is or whatever the standard is. You mm. let them know today, you know, today we're, we're talking about multiplication. How do, how do you use multiplication in your life? You know, you got to make it interesting. You know, when is it necessary to um, multiply? You know, I don't know. If you go to the store, I suppose, and buy, I don't know, um, three packs of whatever, you know, you, you need to know something about multiplying numbers. If I was thinking, if I was had to teach my second grade kid right now a little bit about multiplication, I'd say, so I'm going to get you some gummy worms Every bag has two gummy worms in it. I just gave you four bags. How many gummy worms do you have? <laughs> right, right. And that when you say things like that, that makes the students perk up and they want to listen because they're interested in gummy worms, right? Mm -hmm. They know what they are. Delicious. Okay, rather than rather than just start a lesson with let's multiply these problems. You've got them interested. So you set it up, you're right, with a story, something they can relate to. And then you model what your expectations are. Then you check for understanding to make sure they understand the steps in multiplication. Do you know what I mean? The steps in how you multiply. And then they practice on their own. And then you practice with them. And, you know, that's basically how you set up a lesson. I think I've said too much about lesson planning. But we always use lesson plans in all the classes that I teach. But the rookie teachers, often they're just buzzing through they're just and so kids kids eyes are glossing over and pencils are going on notes and they aren't noticing or right and, and they 
didn't do what you just did. You said you you mentioned gummy gummy worms. You said they have gummy worms and gummy bears, right? Mm-hmm. Gummy you worms and bags. Something... What's that? Gummy worms and bags. Yeah, what? but you mentioned something they're familiar with or something they want to hear about. Hmm. You know, rather than you just go up to the chalkboard. Well, they don't use chalkboard anymore. I guess they use whiteboards. Rather than just go up to the whiteboard and start putting up problems. You know what I mean? Hmm. You set up something to make them interested, make them uh, interested or make them motivated. And you gave them a reason to learn multi- to learn how to multiply. You just gave them a reason. You know, and or like I said, if you go to the store and I tell you to buy three bags of whatever, you know, and you, it, it's the same thing. It's a reason to learn to multiply rather hmm. than students saying, why would I ever need to, lo- to, to learn this? You know, or maybe if you're going to teach about fractions, you know, you might do something with a pizza or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I actually learned that strategy for myself in undergrad. Uh, I learned it as something called, was it contextual learning? I'm, I'm, don't quote me that it was called contextual learning, but it was something like that. And the idea was that you learn best when something is meaningful to you. Uh, right. in a given moment. And so what I do with any project that I'm involved in, I just jump in feet first, headlong. Give me a real task. Give me a due date. For something. <laughs> That's how I operate. I operate with a due date for a task that I don't know how to do. Now I have to learn how to do it and do it in time. Um, and that's how I learn best. I just learn by right there in context. And, and that's how I taught myself, uh, software just by picking a project going, okay, I'm going to do this project in two months. I don't even, it's say it's say it's October and I say, I'm going to have this thing done by new year's. I don't even know how to do it. So I have to learn how to do it and get it done by a deadline. Uh, and that's just for me personally. I don't know if that works for everyone, but, uh, but that's works for me. Yeah. And, and that is learning in context. And, and But when we're writing a lesson plan as teachers, we kind of call that activating their prior knowledge hmm. or, or giving them an anticipatory set. Something that they can relate to. Mm-hmm. Because we always, we do have savings upon relearning. So just by being exposed to those concepts, even if you don't have a context, when you do encounter the context, it's that much easier to absorb. So that, that, that makes learning relevant. Mm. It makes it meaningful, like you said. Meaningful and relevancy are the same. What is your, if I can ask, Auntie Janice, what was your religious upbringing in your house? I know that you're a practicing Christian. Is that the type of house that you grew up in? Yes. Yes. I was actually a member of Church of Christ, which is actually associated with Pepperdine University. Pepperdine University is a private university, and it was funded funded, well, I guess funded and created by someone who was a member of the Church of Christ. Hmm. You know how, like, like private schools, not all private schools, but a lot of private schools, you know, are, are religious based, you know, like Catholic school, you know, like, uh, what is it? Notre Dame, you know, that was a Catholic university, mm. but you don't have to be a Catholic practicing Catholic or even a Catholic to attend there. But most private schools, most of them, not all, were all set up by um, a religious organization. Actually, USC was set up by, uh, even though people don't think of it that way, it was set up, uh, you know, as in religious space. Yeah, I think there's still some lingering uh, every now and then when I would talk to a Trojan, they tell me about how 
there's still some lingering mandatory masses or something like that. Some sort of thing that they have to go to that have this religion. And they were actually complaining about it to me. They're saying, this is very religious. I don't understand why we do it. Right. And I attended a cat, not a cat. I attended a Lutheran um, undergrad school. I, I attended Cal Lutheran. Hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's religious based. And so, you know, I'm sure there's lots of colleges now that are just not necessarily religious based, but USC, figure out, I just know that it was associated church based. Speaking of Cal Lutheran, how did you cross paths with Dwayne Filer? <laughs> um, it was a small college. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of um, African-Americans there at all. Can you believe it? I know how many African-Americans were there approximately when I was there. Hmm. 60. 60? 60. Six, zero, 60. Yep. Hmm. On the whole college? Yes. And, but it was a small college because at the time I, there was probably only a thousand students. But like I said, you... Um, so some some schools, um, well, it was that way when I went to Cal Lutheran. I wasn't Lutheran, but we had to attend. It was called chapel. Hmm. Is that where you and Uncle Dwayne crossed paths in chapel? Oh, no, it was probably just because we were African-American. and so few of us. And the interesting thing is, uh, you know, he went to high school probably 10 minutes from my high school, and I had never met him. But I really think his father spoke at my high school because his father, you do know, was the president of the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the and the president of the NAACP did come and speak at my school once. I'm pretty sure it was him. Did you recognize his name when <laughs> from that no. when you met him? Nope. Nope. Never. No. Did not recognize him at all. What did he do to win you over? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know how when you're young and... Well, well, the other thing is, you know, we lived on campus. Hmm. You know, my undergrad was... And we were away from home. You know, what, what am I? I was only probably an hour away from home. But, you know, I was away from home. And I don't know. It, it, it just happened. I don't know how to explain it. Probably, maybe, if I had been in a larger university such as, you know, UCLA or Cal State Long Beach, our paths may have never crossed. You know what I mean? Because it, it was a bigger school. I think at the time I attended that college, there was only a thousand students. A tiny, tiny Christian university. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a small campus. And I can tell you that for my undergrad I saw a lot of the same people over and over and over, but that was just within the major because we were all crossing paths all the time. And so I knew that there was this subpopulation that I was interacting with in our little corner of the campus and our little corner of the, of the discipline, if you will. But then you were always surrounded by throngs of people who you would see once <laughs> and then, and then they're gone. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, like you said, you were only 
involved with those of the same major. Mm. Whereas at Cal Lutheran, I mean, you almost knew everybody because it was such a tiny school, and we, and we lived on campus. Hmm. And the rate and the races kind of stuck together. Right. Right. What do you think, Auntie Janice, of the um, change in tone and rhetoric around American racism over the past forty years or so? Now, I've heard that. Some people say, oh, racism was we were making progress on racism until Obama got elected or until Trump got elected or until something. Uh, My personal analysis is that we have been working on race relations continuously, but but we allowed erroneously allowed the election of Obama to convince us just a large population of Americans said, Oh, Obama got in racism's over. And that that's actually what we're suffering from. We're suffering from allowing ourselves to believe for a moment that it was over when the work had, had been going on and is still going on along the same trajectory. Uh, what do you think of what's been going on there? I guess considering, like I said, I've been around a long time. Um, when I was growing up, cause I grew up in LA, but Compton Unified, even though, you know, it wasn't the deep South where everybody was segregated. What is it? In the South, I guess that that was, uh, what was it? De jour Mm. segregation, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up in Southern California, it was de facto segregation. Mm. It was just the fact that where you live, you know, when you lived in a certain area, other people moved out, right? Mm -hmm. Or other people chose to live and, and I mean maybe that's just a human nature that people choose to live by people who look like them so when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s or you know well no by 70s I was in college but so when I was you know in the 60s um people lived in areas you know around people that look like them or, or areas that were comfortable do you know what I mean hmm. and then you know that's how you know Areas became all black or all Hispanic or all low income. Well, low income has to do with income. So, you know, that's a no brainer. You live in that low income area because because of your your finances. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, now. You know, now there's we still have de facto segregation due to income. And, and then, of course, income tend to relate to people of color. So that's just a, you know, just an effect uh, of low income. Mm-hmm. So people of color tend to live in the low income inner city areas. But, you know, people who have moved out, you know, from the inner city, I mean, lots of people that are people of color, you know, they, they move way out because, you know what, it's um, it costs less to live in, um, I don't know, out in some areas in the Riverside County, for mm-hmm. example. Mm hmm. It costs less to live in it, or San Bernardino County, right? Mm-hmm. Some, mm-hmm. some of the housing, housing's less there. So there's lots of people of color in those areas, you know. Whereas when I was growing up, you know, they weren't really building. You know, th- th- those areas. Maybe uh, when I was in in college and 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 a young adult, those areas really started to expand. You know, with new housing and things. So lots of people of color have moved. You know out of the inner city. 
well, I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to use Compton as an example because it's easy. Uh, when I was growing up, Compton had um, somewhat diverse, you know, I, I don't think the percentages were equal, but, you know, there was black, white, and Hispanic living in Compton mm. when I was growing up. But by the time I was in high school, it seemed to be mostly black and a few Hispanic. Mm. But now it seems to have flipped. It seems that Compton has more Hispanic than African-Americans now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But it's because people have moved out to other areas. You know, like I said, people tend to flock near people who look like them. That and also I would I would I think part of that is a credit to uh, depending how you want to say it. Let's put a positive spin on it. A credit to. Uh, the Mexican Catholic culture of no abortions. Uh, from what I saw, black families abort at something like 25, 20 to uh, a fifth to a quarter of would be black babies in poor neighborhoods are aborted. Whereas it's m- a much, much smaller number uh, for Mexicans. They just have, they have kids. They don't believe in abortion. They have the kids, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, and so, but I've seen the populations and I think you could have seen it if you looked at the population of elementary schools in the early 2000s and now those kids are those kids have graduated and gone on to college now. But you could have seen that population grow. It grows through the elementary schools uh, in Compton. And that's that's been the case. So if you want to be proud of Compton, got to learn how to say it. Compton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. True. And so um, I've just seen that city change. As a matter of fact, when I was really young when i say young maybe elementary age lynn linwood for an example i remember when linwood was mostly white we see it's changed mm. but I mean, look how many years have passed i'm talking what am i talking i'm talking 50 years later of course you know neighborhoods can change in 50 years but um you know so i've been lucky enough to you know to see the neighborhoods change you know and schools change you know i, I visited compton schools recently and you can count the blacks, you know, that are there, you know, maybe on your, you know, on both hands. Do you mm. know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's really changed. Now, there's African-Americans who have been living there for years, you know, um, maybe my generation might still live there, but, you know, they don't have any kids in school. You know mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, but the mm-hmm. young kids, the elementary schools, you know, I visited and not all of them, but the ones that I visited. You know, the, the black population seems to be disappearing from, you know, the, the very young age, especially elementary. The schools don't look like what they looked. Well, that would make sense. Schools don't look like what they looked like 50 years ago. Yeah, I think that it's my it's my long it's my long view, but uh, but it's stolen uh, from a thinker like a guy named Sam Harris. He says that skin color should be as politically consequential as hair color so when you're applying for a housing application they don't ask you if you're brunette or redhead because it doesn't matter and so it shouldn't matter what color my skin is when i apply for a housing education it shouldn't matter what color my skin is when i apply for anything because my skin color has no bearing or at least should have no bearing uh on my capability on my work ethic on my trustworthiness um all that is independent of the color of my skin and so we use skin color 
as a proxy for culture. Uh, but I know it's not true. I know th- I know that those two things are not always in lockstep. I had an experience when I was up in San Francisco. Uh, I was standing in line at a McDonald's and over my shoulder, I could hear a black guy talking. Uh, and you could tell he was black by the way he spoke in a certain way. He swung his words and his, his tone of voice and his, you know, he, oh, you go. It wasn't a big deal, but you could tell he was black by how he was talking. I turned around and this was the bluest eyed, blondest haired white man I had ever seen speaking, <laughs> speaking this way. Uh, and it just hit me. I saw I was 21. So this is a long time ago, 16 years ago. Maybe I was even 19. Um, it just hit me. Oh, culture is independent of pigmentation. It just so happens that people of the same skin color uh, let's say hang out together a lot. And so they create cultures because they're hanging out. That's, that's just so happens to be the case, but it's not, uh, uh, it's not a metric that, that is necessarily that is, those two metrics are not necessarily tied together. Uh, and so that's where I want to go eventually when it comes to ra- race relations is, is I believe that's a manifestation of Dr. King's dream that eventually we do look at character before skin color. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to get right. this towards. Yeah, and and I've been around long enough to see that you know there's no and, and you know and even though you're not as old as I am, you, you can read that you know there are more black people that have, you know gotten degrees now mm. than it was 50 years ago. So that's changed, you know, not just the presidency, but you know people being educated, people people um, in um, I don't know uh, management positions. You know, it's changed. It's different than it was 50 years ago. It's different than it was 100 years ago, right? Do you think we're getting better? Do you think we're making progress on this front as a culture, American and a black America? I think you said, are we, are we making it? Is it, a, is it better? Is it yeah. better? Are we making yeah. Are we progress? making progress? Whether whether I know it's slow, but do you do you say that we're making progress? Oh, I think you're making progress because mm. remember now. Uh, I'll say 100 years ago, not 50 years ago, but well, maybe not even 50 years ago. Maybe it was 75 years ago um, or 70 years ago. That's how they started the, you know, the the HBCUs, right? Mm, mm. Those were started because 75 years ago and more, you know, you black students couldn't a- attend, you know, in the South, you couldn't attend a, an integrated school, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's why they set up you know, Howard and, and, and uh, other, um, you know, Morehouse and mm-hmm. other HBCs. Now, you could say you don't need HBCUs anymore because now we're supposedly, you know, past segregation, mm. right? Mm. But those schools are still thriving. I don't know if they're thriving like they were earlier, but they're still thriving and they still have students there. But those students who are attending the HBCUs, you know, they, they're still welcome at, at other schools in the South, right? Um, so it's better because you don't really need HBCUs like we in the past. You know, you, you needed those. Where were where were black students? Where were they going to attend school? You know, people who were in their eighties, uh, they were they were in their twenty sixty years ago. So that you know, or, or five years ago. So maybe sixty five years ago and. And more before the 60s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. That, yeah, that, that's right. So before the 60s, you know, before civil rights and before Brown versus the board. Right. And all of that. 
um, blacks were limited in, in where they could attend. Now, not necessarily in California because UCLA and you know USC was still here in the fifties, but in the South, you know, you, you didn't have the choices that you have now. Okay, so now it's a choice to attend an HBCU. It's mm. not, um, what is it? It's not that, that that you have to. You're not forced mm-hmm, to attend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have other but, options so, so now, as a black student. You have other options. So um, I think education-wise, you know, we're doing better. But I don't know. You remember last summer when we had all the protests and I do. Black lives matter. Black lives still matter, and all lives matter. But um, there, there's still some disparities because why are more African-Americans, you know, being, you know, killed by police or mm-hmm. being subject to whatever type of, you know, subjection that, that's happening? You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, all those marches that you saw last summer, well, that was typical in the 60s. And I remember that they had those marches, you know, constantly, especially in the South because of segregation in the 60s. So here we are, what is it, 80 years later? Hmm. Yeah. 80 years later, and we're still marching for equal rights. So I think that's going to happen, you know, till the end of time, because people are race conscious. And I'm, and I'm saying race, race conscious in a negative thing. Because hmm. hmm. it, so, it is the first thing... It is the first thing you see when you see a person uh, is the color of their skin, which is uh, that's what what I've been saying here recently to my friends is that that's actually functioning biology. Uh, if you saw uh, three groups of cars and one group was red and another group was blue and another group was white, that would be your primary method of identifying those cars when they get after they got all mixed up is what color are they? That's just a natural grouping for the brain to use uh so what color a person is is a perfectly fine grouping as a primary identifier and i'm i'm specific to say identifier that is to say adjective Uh, i'm it's perfectly fine to describe me as a black guy because that fits me well (laughs) if i'm standing in a room full of white people you can say oh kari he's the black guy right there oh okay great that's not an insult um but what is true about black Americans is that our wealth is one tenth the wealth of white wealth. Uh, something else is true is that we're incarcerated at an un, un, at a just at an unfair and cruel rate. Uh, and this is due. I don't think anybody would argue that this is due historically to redlining, mass incarceration, uh, Jim Crow, and uh, the convict the the convict lease system, and all. And you could draw a straight line through the 13th Amendment, because it would go through the hole in it, from organized chattel slavery to the race disparities that we see today. But what I like to argue is that this isn't what we see today. Our biggest hurdle is not primary first degree racism like our like my grandparents, your parents fought for. That was first degree racism. What Rosa Parks and Dr. King faced was first degree we don't like colored people racism, but that's not what we're dealing with today. What we're dealing with today is if a person, let's say she's a Starbucks barista and a couple of guys come in and order water and she can't tell if they're up to no good or not. We know as observers that the reason she can't tell if they're up to no good or not is because they're black. 
but she doesn't know that. And that's an important and subtle distinction between her and the people who are spitting on black people at lunch counters 60 years ago. Because uh, she's not equivalent to them. She's not spitting on these black guys at a lunch counter because they're black. But she is concerned that they're criminals because they're black and she doesn't even realize it. Uh, and so what, what we're dealing with now is second degree racism. Uh, maybe even third degree racism, uh, but it's not that primary conscious racism that our that our forefathers, that our ancestors, recent ancestors dealt with. But there's still room to grow. There's still work to do. Uh, what I've been arguing for is closing the hole in the 13th Amendment uh, because the 13th Amendment has that exception in it. This says slavery is illegal. Uh, in the United States, except as punishment for a duly convicted crime. So every criminal is literally a slave under the same system that our ancestors were. Uh, that's wrong. We need to close that loophole. And I'm arguing for reparations. Uh, what I would like to see, I would, I think it's reasonable to argue for reparations to the tune of $3.8 trillion over 10 years from the U.S. federal government to 38 million black American descendants of slaves, not including recent black immigrants. So not including people whose parents came from Cameroon in the 80s. And, you know, now they're doing pretty well. You're you know, hey, I love you. You're my brother. But you're not included in this history of self-doubt and lynchings and burnings in Tulsa Greenwood that that my culture has had to deal with. And we're the ones who to whom slavery uh, to whom reparations are owed is how I argue it these days. So, oh, yes, th that's an interesting, uh, I guess, thought or um, belief that you have. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if money can fix things. You mm. know what I mean? Um, what you described about um, Starbucks and the gentlemen coming in to order water and mm -hmm. the barista not knowing. I think that's what they talk about nowadays and they, they label it implicit bias. They do. Yeah, they call it implicit bias. Yeah, meaning that, you know, maybe you're not aware of it, but and you could even be neutral, but uh, it's just a group of people and, you know, your attitude kind of points back to stereotypes. Um, so that's a different kind of racism, I, I guess, um, because it may not necessarily be um, your 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 belief. Uh, it's just it's not your belief, but it's what you. I don't know. I guess it's what you what you've seen or what you. Have you ever encountered firsthand racism in your life? Well. Well, I think so, but you know, I, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever been stopped for, what do they say, driving while black? I don't think that's happened. No, I mean, I, I mean, anything, I mean, anything overt, explicit to your face, you know, anything like that, that's un unquestionably to, you know, to your face racism. Not direct. They're not, it's not direct, I don't. Mm -hmm. But, um, you, but earlier you said that, um, your color describes you. It describes you, but it doesn't define you. Yeah, that's a good way of saying kind of it. That's a great way of saying it. Yeah. And then also we mentioned when I said most private colleges were founded by religious groups, I did look and it said that USC became secular in 1957, but it was founded, you know, by a religion. Hmm. It was okay. a Unitarian. But um, I don't know. 
um, you know, racism is probably going to always exist because we're, it's human nature to categorize people like you mentioned about the cars and mm. colors. Mm. It's just human nature. Now, if we were all one color, uh, then it wouldn't be racism. It might be just a different type of bias. It would you know be I mean? it would be religious war. Okay, well then, religion. Yeah, it w- so, or it would be culture. It'd be like the uh, the Han and the Uyghur Chinese, be be the Han Chinese versus the Muslim Chinese. Right. You know, because you know nowadays and or in the past too. I mean, you have millionaires and billionaires who are African American, mm-hmm. but some people still say, "Oh, but they're black." You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're millionaires, but they're black. They're just not millionaires. They're a black millionaire rather than saying they're a millionaire. I like to think of, but whenever I think of black, I think of uh, James Brown saying, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I think of uh, Tupac referring to him when he says, James Brown had me feeling like black was the thing to be. And I think of uh, an interview that Barack Obama gave, I think it was the Jay Leno, where he said, you know what, Jay? I was black before the election. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I dig it. So, um, I just think it's human nature. It's going to always be there. Even, even if, and like, like you, you said it, then maybe it would be religion or it would be money. You know, even if, if somehow we were magically all blue, we would still have, um, somebody would still think they're better than somebody else. Mm. It seems to be, I don't know. I don't think it's inborn. I don't. I don't think so. I think it's. I think it has to be taught. Hmm. Hmm. You know. I. I think we're a product of our. You know, of our nurturing, our environment. Maybe it's a. Maybe it's a proper system taken too far. So there is a proper system of judgment and. Uh, ascertainment that we have to do in order to live well so if if you're standing in an alley at 2 a.m and some hooded figure comes walking out of the dark part you don't say to yourself wait let me give this person a chance to behave before i judge them no you get out of the alley is what you do um and but if it's the middle of the day and you're standing in that same alley and some person walks up who's not hooded and they've got a smile on their face, then, yeah, you don't have to run. And so you can judge different different situations differently. Um, what, and I'm saying that to say that you should be looking at John, the salesperson, differently than you look at Jim, the salesperson. And you see how they behave and you judge their differences. People are different and we should should judge differences between between people because some behaviors are better than others Um, and we need to differentiate between good behaviors and bad and i say that to say that's a healthy system but taken too far you come to pre-judgments or prejudice you say okay i see what type of person you are merely upon visual inspection and so i can infer what type of ways you will behave and that's an erroneous inference uh, you have, but but I, I'm trying to think of a time when that might be useful. I don't know when that that used that time or in the alley. I guess that's the first example I gave. So in the first example, it's life or death that you infer how that person is going to behave. But most situations are not that. 
Most situations, you have to let a person behave before you judge them. Right. But you but you still your perception is still based on experience. Hmm. So you said that in the daytime in the same alley, meet an unhooded person that might just pass by with a smile. Hmm. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that person is okay. That's right. They might, so it, and if they rob you, the next time you're standing in that alley, <laughs> you're going to be weirded out. Right, or you won't go to the alley. That's anymore. true. Because you know that an alley is a place that you can it, it, that you can get set up or, or robbed. Mm. So you, um, so you really can't. Well, I guess the media helps with that you really can't look at a person media or not you can't look at a person and tell who's good or bad it doesn't matter mm. you know a person wearing a suit mm. that's you know, uh that looks professional and seems clean and mm. seems harmless may not be birdie madoff right taking all the pensioners money completely right. guiltless so every situation Unfortunately or fortunately, is different. Hmm. What's some advice that you've imparted to your children over the years that you think uh, kids could benefit from these days? Well, I remember when I was teaching both my kids to drive, that'll be a good example for me. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about racism. Um. You know, or, or being stereotyped hmm. or, or stereotyping individuals. When my kids are learning to drive, I always said, I don't think I use the term to be very defensive. You know, defensive driving would be the right term, but I don't think I use that term. I'm pretty sure I didn't. I said, you have to be very careful when you're driving because there are drunk drivers out there, right? Hmm. And you don't know which ones are the drunk drivers. Yes. So the, the way you remain safe is, you have to drive as if everybody's drunk. <laughs> and I know that sounds weird. but It sounds great. But that's so that, you know, you don't know. You don't know who has a gun. You don't know who has alcohol. You don't know who's on drugs. You don't know. So you're going to have to. So I, I think maybe it was overboard. You have to be super, super uh, aware of your environment and trust and this sounds terrible. You're not going to like it. But, you know, you really can't trust anyone that you don't know. Right. Mm. Mm. And maybe you can't even trust people that, you know, because people change. It, mm. it depends on the time of the day, uh, the day of the week. You know, I may not trust myself to remember certain things. So trust is, you know, trust can be earned, but you got to be careful with anybody that you meet. And, and maybe I'm going overboard, but that way, you know, your defenses are always up. I'm not saying don't trust anyone. That's what it sounds like I'm saying. I don't really mean that. What I mean is, you know, you have to get to know someone before you can trust them. And then you may not even be able to trust them then. So I don't know. So my kids always said that I was afraid of everything. And I, I don't want to appear that way. I just want, you know... Safety first. I don't know what else to say. Mm, mm. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Because you don't. 
you you have to you don't you don't give all of your trust to someone the moment you meet them. Uh, that's foolishness. If you walk up to a person and you don't know them from Adam and you say, will you hold on to my credit cards and my social security number, my bank account number while I go pet this dog over here and then just walk away? That's pure foolishness. Trusting this person completely having never met them. Uh, but you should trust a person to the extent that you have interacted with them. So if I'm standing next to you in in a long line at the first moment i don't trust you but once we've been here for 10 seconds okay now i trust that you're not the type of a person that attacks random people in the first 10 seconds i know that about you now and the longer we stand next to each other the further that goes um i think the the saying that comes to my mind is trust you as far as i could throw you right which is yeah you know if i can't throw you very far i don't gotta trust you very much but in the beginning, you know, let me trust you with a small thing. Instead of saying, hey, will you hold my credit card to my social security number? Say, will you hold this bag of two sodas in it while I run into this car real quick and then I'll be back in a few seconds? Sure. I come back and you got my sodas. Okay, great. Next time, maybe it'll be a fruit. I don't know. Something like this. But you you begin moving with trust incrementally. Uh, in yeah. in most situations, you build trust. You're, yeah, right. Yeah, I think my mom taught me the same thing, and she, and the the other edge of that was, you once somebody shows you who they are, you believe them the first time, and so if you're trusting somebody and you've extended that to them, and they show themselves to be trustworthy for a year two, but then they flip. They cut you out. They they burn your trust somehow. That's it. They've burnt it. Uh, and you got to believe that they're going to continue to burn it. And so I think and that's something else that you pointed to is that people change. Uh, what are some ways that you've changed that you've noticed over the years? Well, it's taken me many, many, many years to realize. And I mean, my goodness, more than a lifetime. <laughs> well, I don't know. To realize that. We're all different. You know, I think that I'm making an excuse because I was a teacher. So in being a teacher, you know, being a teacher, your job is to change people, to impart knowledge, to to, to provide skills in different areas, right? Mm. So that was my job. So maybe I was confusing my job with um, just everyday people. You know, my job is not to teach everybody I meet, right? Mm. So I've learned now, maybe because I, I'm a talker and because I was a teacher, that sometimes somebody will say something that I find offensive and it may not be directly offensive about me, but they say something that I think would offend another person. Mm. It depends on how serious it is, but I've learned to just nod and say, Oh, Mm. okay. You know, and maybe I'm, I'm more like that with people I know rather than strangers. Well, no, I I guess I'm like that with strange. I don't know. It's just that I've learned that you don't have to, um, what's the word? You don't have to challenge everybody mm. in every idea and everything I hear. I don't have to make a, a case out of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody yeah. says something, you know, it's not that serious. That I need to get in an argument. I don't have to defend everything. Somebody says, it sounds I mean, like pick have- your battles to me. Right. I guess that's it. Thank you. 
you know, when I was young, somebody say something weird. I say, oh, why did you say that? That's not nice. Or why would you say this about that? That's not nice. Or why do you believe this? I disagree. Mm-hmm. I don't always have to disagree. Sometimes I can just be silent. So I think it depends on, you know, the severity of whatever the, the topic is or the action. It's not always speaking. It could be an action. I see somebody do something that I wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless it's really hurting another person, unless there's some serious consequences, I, I have to learn to just watch it, and and that's that. You know, that well, a you're a time. you're a fighter. Uh, you're a fighter and a leader. And I, re- it, it, there was one time we were at some. I think it was, I'm going to guess it was a family reunion, and Uncle K had tickets to something, uh, and I went to your hotel room to see about going to the thing and uncle Dwayne couldn't find the tickets. And so he was flustered because he couldn't find the tickets. Lance was flustered because he couldn't find the tickets. And you said, both of you stop. There are plenty of tickets. Stop worrying about it. We're going to go now. (laughs) Take, you know, you said, take my ticket. I'm coming behind you. I'll be able to get in. Stop worrying about it. And I thought, wow, that's, that was a, that was a possibly a flustering situation that she just squashed, put in the box said, here's a solution. Send you on your day. Uh, and I've I've been I'm so impressed by that. <laughs> I've been impressed wow, by that my whole that's life. A, that's a moment in time that you remember. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It impressed me. It impressed me so much because you 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 think fast. You think on your feet. You think of solutions. Uh, you're not afraid to speak your mind, and you're a true leader. And that's what. And it sounds like what you've learned over the years is it's okay to be a you know to speak your mind and and never be afraid of a battle. But not every battle is worth the energy. <laughs> Yes. And you said it when I was trying to describe it. You just said, pick your battles. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) That is what I mean. Pick your battles. It's not necessary to make a a fuss out of every single thing that happens. Mm. It's not necessary. You know, uh, life's too short, number one. And number two, I guess this is, I kind of learned this from Lance. He told me this one. He said, everything is not a 10. Relax. Hmm. You know, and I never looked at it like that. Everything is not a 10, you know. Roll with it. Hmm. And maybe I learned that, um, I don't know, over the years, maybe maybe working in the schools. I mean, you know, being a teacher, I, I can't let everything upset me. I, and that brings me back to that student that I think went back to juvenile hall or something because... I do remember one thing I did that maybe he remembers, which to me was tiny. Hmm. I mean, I always tried to treat everybody the same and maybe, maybe other people didn't treat him, you know, on the same level. Everybody's on the same level. As far as I'm, you know, the, 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 the playing level is, is, is equal for everybody. I think, but he did light a fire in my classroom. Hmm. It was a small fire. Hmm. I was walking up and down the aisles. They were sitting in their desk and he had matches or something. And I, I saw him lighting literal you fire know. i was thinking he ignited some oh. student spirit but you're talking about <laughs> no, no no literally so he he would strike maybe he was just striking matches you know lighting paper on his desk but you know that he, he could have you know accidentally you know set the classroom on That's fire right. you know, if he had if he had you know lit a, a, a textbook or, right. or or some child on fire yeah i saw him doing it i just took the matches and said put that out and i kept teaching now that might not seem much to you but that's one of the very few interactions I had with him. 
Mm. I didn't say, oh, go to the office. You know, mm. you're lighting fires in the classroom. I didn't make I didn't make a case out of it. I just mm. said, give me those matches and put that out. And I didn't even blink. I didn't even I didn't bring attention to him. You know, and so maybe that was a good thing, you know, because when he said, you know, he, that's the only teacher I liked here. I thought, what have I ever done? That was great. Mm. But I do remember I didn't make a federal case out of him striking matches in the classroom. I just said, give me those. And I didn't even make a scene. I don't think I told the other kids, watch out. He's got fire. I don't think mm. I did anything. I said, give me those. And I just kept walking because, you know, he hadn't he hadn't lit the classroom afire. <laughs> so it didn't bother me. And then another student told me once something that I did well. And I don't know why I did that. It was just in- instinct. I was teaching high school. Uh, and, uh, dude, I was very, very careful about, I didn't want students to cheat on exams or, um, or quizzes. You know, I treated every test and every exam as if it was the SAT. Mm. But I did that because I was trying to teach them, you know, the importance of, you know, integrity and not cheating. So anyway, we're taking a vocabulary test. You know, and we took those weekly or every other week. You know, I don't know how many words. 25 words was a vocabulary test. It was 10th grade. Hmm. And I noticed, because I do walk up and down the aisles and I tell them they can have nothing on their desk but a pencil and the test. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To make sure they they weren't cheating. And that was just my lesson about you're not supposed to cheat in life, I guess. I don't know. So I was walking up and down the aisles and I saw this student. And he had written all of the answers on a teeny tiny piece of paper that's no bigger than your fingertip. Hmm. You know, it, he like tore paper the size of your fingertip, every single vocabulary word or something, you know, the answers. I don't know how he did that. It would have taken quite some time. You know, he could have learned the words <laughs> faster than doing that. But I saw it on his fingertip. You know, any other person may have not noticed that because it was just a teeny tiny piece. He didn't have a big cheat sheet. He didn't have a half of a sheet. He didn't have hmm. a, tw- a fourth of a sheet. It, it was the size of a fingertip, I'm telling you. I saw him looking at it. And when I walked by his desk, I held my hand out very indiscreetly. And mm. he knew that that meant, give me that in your hand. Mm. Well, yeah, I, did, I didn't say anything. I, 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 I didn't, um, I, I just, I, I didn't say any words. I didn't vocalize. I didn't say anything. I walked by his desk and held my hand out only where he could see it. He put it in my hand. And we went on with the uh, quiz. Mm. And maybe that was period one or two. It was earlier in the day. You know, after school, mm-hmm. he came back to me and said, I just came to tell you thank you. You didn't embarrass me in front of the whole class. I mean, why would I want to embarrass him? Why would I yell, give me that, or you cheater? Why would I do that? Well, I'm you know, sure teachers <laughs> do. And, and I'm confident that that's what these kids are used to uh kids are probably these kids are probably used to being able to make the slightest little misstep and then see their teacher or their parent or their older brother completely come out of themselves because those people have chips on their shoulders they have something they have to prove and they can't wait to take out their energies on this troublemaker and they're just used to that they're just used to being the troublemaker that lets other people take their negative energies out on and they've become accustomed to this and you gave these students who are used to being humiliated and stripped of their dignity just as a way of being, you gave them dignity in the moment, uh, on the spur of the moment, on a whim. Uh, and it, it caught them by surprise and struck them in a, in a beautiful way, it sounds like. Yeah, I guess so. And, and there's a 
a program called Discipline with Dignity, which I've never ran, read hmm. or used, but I guess you're right. I did, you know, they didn't lose face. I didn't embarrass them. Hmm. I didn't take away their dignity. And I didn't know I was doing that. It wasn't intentional. But why do I want to scream and say, cheater? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or I'm going to, you know, other teachers, I guess, would say, maybe I'm going to call your mom. I didn't say anything like that. And I was surprised he came after school, after the whole school day and said, thank you so much for doing that. I thought, oh, you're welcome. You know, you still have a zero, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you're welcome. I don't know what I said. You know, I I tried not to be sarcastic with kids. So I don't know if I said you have a zero or if I said take the test over. I don't even remember what I said. But I I, I never forgot that he came after school to say, you know, thank you for not making an example out of me. It reminds me of a section that I read in, I want to say this is in The Four Agreements. uh, And it's just, it's a fictional book. Uh, what the four agreements aren't the four agreements are always do your best. Don't take anything personally, be impeccable with your word and don't make assumptions. And uh, there's this passage. I think it's in this book. It could be in some other Don Miguel book, but uh, this woman and her passenger are driving and they're talking about uh, emotions and spirit and how to deal with people. And that's what the context is. And they arrive at their destination. They get out the car and this guy comes out of the house and he's pissed. He's angry. He's saying, who do you think you are? Da, 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 da. And he's got a shotgun and he cocks it. And maybe it's not pointed at him, but he's got a loaded shotgun cocked in his hand. He's yelling and screaming. He says, you need to da, 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 da. And the guy is frightened. The passenger guy is absolutely frightened, but he's not a yogi practitioner of this principle, this discipline. Uh, and then the woman says, I'm sorry that that's the case. And the guy's just yelling and yelling and yelling. She's just listening and taking. He's calling her every name in the book. And she's just taking it, taking it, taking it. And after about a f- five minutes, four or five minutes of this, the guy stops talking. He says, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't know this. And he calms down. He goes back in. When they get when the two get back in the car, she sa- the guy says to the girl, why didn't you panic? Why didn't you run? Why didn't you fight back? How were you so calm in that situation? And she said, sometimes people just got to let off negative energy. And it's not. It's not you, you know, it's them. Um, And I say that to say a lot of people walk around waiting to let off negative energy at people. And you don't, you you do, you do, you're a pair, you're a paragon of why am I going to take my, why am I going to redirect my troubles at you random person? Uh, You know, and, and if I've learned that, I've learned that partially from you is that there's no reason to do that. There's no reason to redirect the chip on my shoulder at somebody else that I'm interacting with. Cause that just adds negativity to the world. Right. And that's a good word. I never looked at it like that, but that is redirecting. I guess that's what I did when the kid was making the fire. And when the kid was cheating, I just went on to something else and I didn't, you know, moved on, you know, and remain calm, I guess. I mm. don't know. Mm. Now I'm not always calm. You know, your uncle Dwayne will let you know, I'm not always calm. <laughs> Well, I, what, what, so I'm a, I'm a newlywed, uh, and what, what advice? Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. What's something that you've learned from decades of marriage that, uh, that every newlywed should know? And decades is right. Cause I've had 44 years of marriage. Mm-hmm. You would think I could get it right by now. Um, it's back to what I just said. And you told me. What were your words? You said, um, pick your battles. Hmm. And it's taken me years to understand. Everything is, is not a 10. Hmm. 
and Lance used to say that I that I would do that because you you know he saw me every day and saw me in action and you know I wasn't calm like you like you know you saw me every now and then he saw me every day and he, mm. he told me one time everything is not a ten. I thought oh it's true. Now I didn't immediately understand and live by that, but that's the same thing about marriage. Pick your battles. I mean, you know, unless it's what is it a life and death situation. Hmm. Unless someone's bleeding, and I try to tell Aaron this about being an assistant principal. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to share this with you, and I have to try to tell her this every day. Well, it feels like every day. If, if the kids aren't laying on the sidewalk bleeding, if you don't need 911, if um, nobody's injured, relax and deal with it. Mm. You know, you can't relax in an emergency. That's why the... An ambulance, you know, has to fly up and down the street, you know, and, and run red lights hmm. because in an emergency, you do not relax. But everything is not an emergency. Hmm. And you have to. And I, I think, I, you know, you, you seem pretty calm. And so does Lorraine. I think Lorraine knows this better than I do. She looks like it and acts like she knows. You know, everything is not an emergency. Everything is not urgent. Relax. You know, it'll it'll it, it'll pass. You know, I'm, I'm, everything doesn't get better, but everything does pass because that's how life works. You know, we go from the present to the future. So, you know, well, we go from the past to the present to the future. Hmm. So whatever's going on, no matter what it is, it's going to pass. So, um, I don't know if, if you're if your ceiling is leaking. You know, that's a poor example. If your ceiling is leaking, it can be fixed. You know what I mean? Hmm. If you're. If your uh, plumbing isn't working, it's not the end of the world. Those are things that are fixable. Hmm. So everything. Now, like I said, if someone's bleeding and they need nine one one, that is when you have to move. But every you, you don't you you can't treat everything as urgent because everything is not urgent. And you can't. What did you say? You need to pick your battles. You can't argue about everything. It isn't necessary. You know, they, they always say, you know, you got to meet in the middle and, 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 you know, even if you don't agree, you're just going to have to agree to, what is it? Agree to disagree. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to it. You know, I signed up for this and I'm happy that I found somebody that is on a similar wavelength. I feel like this is becoming rarer in my generation somebody who is uh says look i'm looking for a life partner a serious commitment and i take it heavily right it's not marriage is not a light thing i feel like my generation uh, somehow got it in their mind that marriage is a bit like a car lease that just when you're done with it okay next that's not that's not what marriage is if if that's what you right. thought marriage was you shouldn't have made the vow in the first place that's not what it that's, that's never been what it is um right yeah you you, you commit to somebody you stick with them yeah you know it, 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 as much as possible you know unless somebody pulls a gun on you well then that's yeah. urgent yes yes <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know but yeah i mean i don't know you know my my I don't know. My only examples, I, I guess my parents were married for, I don't know, over 60 years. And, mm. and I know lots of parents that have been married. It's beautiful. And how they made it, I don't know the secret. I just know that, like you said, you know, you signed up for it. You try to 
you try to make it work. You know, I mean, there there's some things, you know, in marriage that are unacceptable. Like I said, you know, somebody tries to kill you or mm, mm. whatever but, and, and, and some other things. But, you know, not everything is worth fighting about. Yep. I hear it. I hear it. I, uh, we, we had to stop watching TV together. So we stopped watching shows together because it upset me that we spent so much of our time together doing that, just watching a show. Cause I feel like that was very passive, not a meaningful engagement. And she, <laughs> she surprised me because she turned around and said, Oh, you don't think this is meaningful what we do together? How about we don't watch shows together anymore? <laughs> she's a she's a firecracker in that in that regard uh i didn't see that would come and i actually like that she did that though because it actually improved our relationship a lot because now when we're interacting we that's exactly what we're doing we're interacting we're talking we're eating we're we're hanging out when we're interacting not just watching a show together not that not that we can't ever watch shows we do watch shows together but it's gone from something that was kind of a primary activity in our relationship to just something we do sometimes and not, not this cornerstone thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, t- TV's fine. Uh, well, during the pandemic, I guess you don't have a lot of choices <laughs> and that might be part of the reason you got married during the pandemic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, when did you get married? What month was that? It was in January. Of 2020. Of 2021. So this, it was about seven months ago. Oh, okay. Then, then yeah. Then you got married. Right. So you're, so, so all you know is the pandemic. So, hmm. you know, as, as far as marriage is concerned. So you're forced to watch a lot of TV, right? But you guys can think of other things to do because you're right. TV is okay. It has its place. But this is just my belief. If all you do is watch TV 24-7, how's that a, a relationship? Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. you can do that with it. You can do that with a neighbor. Yeah. You know what I mean, you can have your next door neighbor come over and sit on the couch with you for 24 mm-hmm. seven. That, that has nothing to do with watching TV has nothing to do with being married. I mean, it's okay to find some common shows that you like things you enjoy, but you know, you can watch TV with a stranger mm. for 24 mm. seven. So you, you want marriage to be, you know, beyond that. So that's a good thing. And even though it's a pandemic, I guess you guys do find other things to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can, we can talk and share in each other's lives and, uh, one of the things that I I love about her is that she uh, likes my silliness, my particular brand of silliness. Uh, she thinks that's funny, and then also I can I can pretend that something is true, and then she'll believe me. So she's kind of gullible to my dry humor when I want to be particularly believable, and so I have a fun time with that as well. <laughs> yeah, well, as long as you have joy and, and happiness, you don't want to be sad all the time. Mm. Or mad. You don't want to be mad or sad all the time. You know, so... Um, my favorite rapper, being. my favorite rapper, Tupac, has a lyric where he says, I make you smile, but you'd rather have what makes you cry. And he's talking about a woman that he's pursuing that's in a bad relationship. I think it's beautiful, poetic. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Yeah. You know, but there is a time, you know, a time to laugh and a time to cry. A time to live and a time to die. And mm. of course, that's not from, from the Bible. But... um you know, um, I don't know. It's um, well, no, nobody's been through this pandemic because everybody that went through the other pandemic is passed on by now. I would think, mm-hmm. um, mostly because you'd have to be over a hundred years old to have been part of the other pandemic. Mm-hmm. So there could be somebody who's still alive, um, but um, this is new for everybody, mm-hmm. and it 
you know, what do they say? You know, that, you know, it's stressful. It's mentally draining because it's not business as usual. And you got to find some other things to bring you joy. Did you get the <laughs> vaccine? Were you vaccine hesitant? Oh, no, no, I got both. You know, I, I was a little afraid. But then Aaron said to me, Mom, your body's full of vaccines. You'll be fine. She's mm. right. At my age, I've had every vaccine demand. <laughs> I'm trying did to. You the, did you get the vaccine? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to mount a case against. There are some people in my life who are vaccine hesitant, uh, and I'm working on them as best I can. Um, and it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, because it's not just about you, it's about other people. You know, if you. There are people that. You know, oh, I don't want the vaccine. Yeah, well, then you you might carry it and, and hurt somebody else. Mm. You know, so it's not just about you, the vaccine. Mm. It's about caring about yourself and others. That's a good point. You know, because yeah, because because somebody could pick it up, pick up the the virus, and not get sick. You know, uh, maybe somebody with a strong immune system could mm. pick up the virus and not get sick, mm. but then they pass it on to somebody who has a weak um, immune system. Yeah, I think what they would say to that is, well, I can carry the vaccine. I can carry the the bug even if I get vaccinated. Mm. Okay, well, I don't know the answer to that. Because let me think. I'm vaccinated and but I'm not just vaccinated. I I still wear masks and things. You know, Mm. I I, I, I'm still taking all the precautions. I'm not saying I won't get COVID-19 because nobody knows every single thing about it but mm-hmm. you know it, i'm vaccinated and I, I i wear the mask because you know everything's not um perfect you know because everybody's still learning this is new yeah now what i did hear them say yesterday was that you know i heard this on the news that it's not spread by droplet the, the um the delta variant is not spread by droplet it's spread by aerosol. Hmm. So I assume that means smaller droplets. Hmm. You know, smaller than, than, than droplets. Yeah. You know, what's the difference between droplets and aerosol? I think droplets are, are, are bigger than aerosols. Cheese hmm. Louise. Yeah. 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 It's, I think what it's come, what it comes down to is what the person wants to believe. And so we, mm-hmm. we all have to take responsibility for what we believe, but also what we want to believe. Because if, if a person wants to believe that taking the vaccine is riskier and more dangerous than not taking the vaccine, all they need is one piece of evidence to go, okay, this is, I see, I found my evidence. And then they keep going. And then no matter what you put, no matter what you show them, they go, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? There's a, what about for everything? And the people that I've talked to and it's, there's no. And so the, I think what, what the next time I talk to a person, I'm going to try to get to this sooner is that, look, do you want to, do you, will you admit that you want to believe that the vaccine is more harmful than unchecked coronavirus? Will you just admit explicitly admit that you want to believe that? Because if you want to believe that, how am I going to how can I tell you not to? Because you're, you're going to find every case to. And then the, the same is true for me. Right. I want to believe that taking the vaccine and being vaccinated is safer 
than encountering unchecked coronavirus. I want to believe that. And I look out in the world, I see the evidence I need, and I get my vaccinations and I go forward. Um, and I'm not the only one. There's about 150 million of us at this point. But the other 20 million or 30 million that we need in order to reach 70, 80 percent really need to come on board uh, because that's how herd immunity works. There's another five, 10 percent of the population that can't uh, not including kids. I mean, not, the kids can't get vaccinated and there are adults who are immunocompromised who can't get vaccinated and the herd immunity is meant to protect them. And so your point is well taken. Getting the vaccine isn't just about you. It's about the other people that you might carry the bug uh, into contact with. Right. Right. And then while we were talking, I looked at the difference. It said aerosol and droplets. It's not just size. I thought it was just mainly the size. Difference. It, it is a difference in size. It says droplets fall to the earth quickly, but aerosols, which are smaller travel um, in the air for, could potentially be in the air for hours. Mm. You know, so I guess that's like, when I think about it, you know, like if somebody sprays, um, I don't know, well, it may not be the same. I was going to say like when you, you spray Lysol or, or, you know, something, you know, you smell it for hours, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if it's still traveling in the air or if it's on um, a surface, but um, they said the droplets, you know, fall, I guess, because they're heavier. Mm -hmm. They fall quickly, but it says uh, aerosols can travel for hours. That's no, people, uh, people got to get vaccinated. And, and it's unfortunate that we're at a state where we have to try to convince Americans that the vaccines that these companies are making are not more dangerous than unchecked coronavirus. Uh, and the, these are the people that I've talked to. This is sincerely what they believe. They believe that getting the vaccine is riskier is more dangerous than encountering unchecked coronavirus. They believe that. And they, they believe that the coronavirus is real. They believe all that stuff. They just, they think that it's overblown in the media is their feeling, their sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I would think that I've seen enough on TV and everything isn't TV. I realize I have a friend who I respect, who I went to high school with and I don't know what she's saying now because I've spoken to her lately. But last year when I would when I talked to her, she would say she's not wearing a mask. She doesn't believe that, you know, everybody's dying of COVID, even though they they show it on TV. I mean, the doctors and nurses would have to all be in this conspiracy. Yeah. If it wasn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. She I says, do. oh, no. She says, oh, no, people die all the time. You know, heart attacks or whatever. They're just calling it coronavirus. Mm. Well, so, it, so I decided it's not worth me arguing with her. You know, mm. I listen to her, mm. but I, be, you know, I believe in it. I wear a mask, and I told her I've known pe purple. Pe excuse me, I've known people personally who have passed away with coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not fiction. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why she's yeah, educated. Me too. I know I've people who died too. Years. Yeah, she's educated. I've known her for years, so I don't know why she would think that it's. She acts like it's a scam or it's a conspiracy. I think part of what's going on, and this is a more of a, an, an analytical stretch, but I, th I think it's really happening, is that the age of information 
caused us to feel like we were losing control. So it, we, we might not have known it, but before the age of information. So when news traveled as fast as a local newspaper and that was about as fast as it went or the night and the nightly news, but then that was only the national stuff, right? Uh, you didn't hear. We, you know, you didn't hear about a shooting in Bangladesh before other people in Bangladesh knew, right, from the other side of the world. Uh, but we can we can hear about that stuff now. It took away a sense of control from a lot of people, um, a lot of people who were in cultures that were maybe homogenous or now those cultures are changing very rapidly. U.S. will be majority by minority in about 30 years. And that's taken away their sense of control uh, of what their culture was because culture used to be predictable now it's unpredictable um then coronavirus so there's age of information that's fine coronavirus hits now there's even less control now governments taking control so people have this a lot of people have an innate sense of a of a losing control of a lack of control over their own lives and they're saying to themselves well you can't force me to take this medicine yeah and so this is a, an opportunity for them to assert control over something meaningful and it's it's partly hijacking otherwise reasonable hardware in their brains they're they're taking an opportunity they're feeling so they're feeling so pressed down that they go you know what you're not going to press me down anymore i'm going to stand up here even though you're standing on a pile of sand you've chosen a pile of sand to stand on this isn't the place to stand, this anti-vaccine stand, this anti-mask stand. That's not the right place to choose to stand. I understand the feeling of wanting to stop being pressed down, but not here, right? Not here. Some Somewhere else. No, this is, yeah. No, this is life and death. Yeah. You know, it, when it's life and death, to me, there's no question. You know, it's like when I talked about things, urgency. This is urgent. And it's not just the United States. You know, since we do have access to you know, world news and, and, and because we have, you know, the technology to find out what's going on in around the world. It's around the world. Mm -hmm. It's not the United States with the with the evil plan. Yeah, it's happening everywhere. I don't and, know, you know if you've and, seen it, but Johns Hopkins keeps an incredible dashboard tracking the coronavirus globally. I've been watching it for over the since the whole time now. It's an incredible dashboard. And where is and, and where is it worse right now? Is it worse here? Uh, let me see. I know one, once on the news, it was terrible in India. So I think India was, I think what they got was Delta variant before the rest of us got it. Um, oh. And I heard an Indian guy say that they had gotten over the hump and they thought, oh, we did it fine. And so they went, they went from zero to a hundred in terms of relaxation. And that was wrong. Um, it's India right after us. Oh, you mean you mean we're number two or we're number one? We're number one. Yeah, which is bad isn't because that, India has three times the people. Isn't that sad that we're yeah. supposed to be an industrialized, wealthy country and we're number one? That that What does that say? In cases and deaths. So what does that say? We have the most money and we have the, the, the most access, I'm, I'm sure, to vaccine. Yep. How, how can we be number one? What does that say to you? It says to me that we have alienated uh, such a significant portion of the population that they don't they're just unwilling to trust even the most robust science. It's unbelievable that everybody in this country 
I think, has access to vaccinations, yeah. but we're still number one. That's that is a scary thought. Of course, that also means that money means nothing. That's true. Money, money, and access to education means nothing. That's true. We're we're we're, we're destroying ourselves. You know, I, I don't even know what to say. You know, there 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 are lots of poor countries, uh, 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 lots of poor places, much that have le- much less of everything than we do, and they're doing better. They know to stay away from people. And we don't know that. Yeah, that's what I've heard that no, there are countries no. that are clamoring for the vaccine. And we've got we've got more that we got people that just won't take it. We got more vaccines than people and they just won't take it. Where the, meanwhile, there are other people are in the, uh, around the world that are clamoring to get access to a vaccine. Right, right. But those that are aware of it. Seem to not be taking as many chances. Maybe it means just the basic. Because we're greedy and we have more, it, 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 it's it's causing our downfall, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I think we're, I tell you, one thing America does well, that's foster individualism. Uh, you know, and so trying to get Americans to do any one thing, it's exactly like herding cats. And unfortunately, when it comes to herd immunity and taking the vaccine, uh, we don't need cats. We need, for lack of a better phrase, I mean, we don't need sheep. What's what's better than sheep? We need soldiers. <laughs> so right, we need right. we need soldiers. We need people to understand that this is a war. We're fighting a war with coronavirus, and this isn't the time to start questioning your captain. Uh, follow the order. Exactly. And you know, I heard things last year when you know when the uh, coronavirus first became prevalent. I heard things like. Um, other countries, you know, I don't know, in, in Europe and in, in Asia. And I'm not saying we need to go to a militaristic state, but I've mm. heard of other countries where, okay, you know, everybody stay in your house. And yeah. I'm not saying that you, know, you can't go to the store and you can't go outside and get some air. But some other countries were, they really took it more serious and they mm. said, all right, stay in. When we, lockdown means lockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, but, but we have so many freedoms goes back to what you say. We're so free that to do whatever we want that I think we're paying for it. We can. I'm really uh, I really am appreciative of Joe Biden um, mandating federal employees to get the jabs. I think that was a good move. Uh, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a Joe Biden fan. Uh, I'm not certainly not a member of the Biden fan club for any reason. To me, he's just a just a run of the mill neo-lib rich are going to get richer but i do like that he did that i do like that he said you know what we can do something we can't force everyone to get the jabs but we can make our employees get the jabs and what's going to happen i think by making the military get the shots a lot of these communities that are deeply anti-vax somebody in their family is going to be military so somebody in their family they're all going to know and also there's this phenomenon i don't know if you heard this there are secret vaccinators out there people who live in a community that's anti-vax but they understand the science and so they go get vaccinated but they just don't talk about it they just don't tell anybody and they just participate in the anti-vax conversations but you know obviously not as enthusiastically uh, but now with the military forcing people to get jabs they're going to go back and everybody's going to know that they got vaccinated because they're active military so now it has now you're gonna watch this person now you're gonna watch joanne who just came back from atlanta go okay joanne we know you have the vaccine so we're gonna see if you turn into a turtle in the next 
90 days. And when she doesn't, maybe that'll be some evidence that the vaccine isn't actually harmful. True. But then it's back to what I was thinking. We ha- we're free to be, what is it? Free to be me. Mm. And, you know, we've taken that freedom um, to the extreme. You know, we're free to go to the schools of your choice. You're free mm. to go to the church of your choice. And I believe in that. You're free to vote for the person of your choice. But we're we're so free that we're in bondage because hmm. we're also free to get a gun and kill whoever you want. That's right. You know, there are countries that if, if you're caught with a gun, you never get out of prison. Hmm. You know, I'm not saying we want to go to that extreme, but there are countries that if you're caught with a weapon, you go to prison and you never get out. You're, you're Here, saying that it doesn't have to be this way, that we're choosing to have our culture this way. Right, right. So, you know, so I know we're founded on freedom, you know, freedom to vote and freedom to, but that freedom to bear arms has gotten out of control, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're, I don't think we're ever going to get the guns out of our population. Um, Not that, not that I particularly want us to. I just think that the, I think the constitution is pretty ironclad about individuals owning guns. Uh, When I read the second amendment, that's how I read it. Uh, now, if the entire Supreme Court were to somehow say that the Second Amendment is actually only referring to persons that are registered with their state as a member of the of that state's militia, if they want to interpret it that strictly, uh, that would be a hell of a fight. <laughs> right, right. I don't see that happening. And so short of that, um, short of that, we just have to wish our police officers uh, Godspeed in dealing with people on the streets because I saw a video one time that really made me respect what officers are going through and it was a camera behind a piece of bulletproof glass and a cop had stopped this guy on the truck and it was, it was acting right so it was all contrived these weren't real people but it was a guy who was pretending to have been stopped by a truck by a cop uh, and he's the cops walking up towards the truck and the guy opens up the truck door and he shoots at the plate glass. And of course you see the camera shatter. And then the next question, I mean, you see the glass get hit by the bullet. And the next question is, when did you see the gun? And the, uh, to me, it was point well taken. You never see it. If, if anybody, if anybody getting pulled over by a cop just decided to step out and shoot, a cop couldn't pull his gun fast enough. There's, it's not possible. So they have to approach every situation as if somebody's about to do that. Otherwise they don't get to go home and see their family. Uh, and because exactly. and because the Constitution puts guns in people's hands so firmly, that's how officers have to approach every interaction. Now, I'm for the a couple, couple there are a couple solutions to that that I've heard recently that are good. One is backing up on the traffic stops, backing up on the routine traffic stops. Just don't do what is it so important that somebody's taillight is out? That you have to go enter a mortal combat, right? It's not that important, right? You got their license plate, send them a thing in the mail (laughs) that says, hey, we took a picture of your taillight. It was out. Here's the photo document. You've got a $50 ticket now. Um, Another is training all police officers in jujitsu so that they know how to have a fist, how to have a, a body to body combat 
without it becoming a moral situation because a, the, a lot of cops, most cops these days, I think, what, 98% are not trained in jujitsu. So whenever they're wrestling with somebody in these stupid chokeholds, they don't know if this person's going to be able to get their gun or not. So they, they're behaving at that level of panic. But if they were trained in jujitsu, as some are, and there's a lot of, there's some evidence for this, then when they're wrestling with somebody, they don't have to worry about that person grabbing their gun because they're a trained fighter. Uh, and I think all officers need that training. And that would reduce mortality quite a bit. But to the point of the guns, that would lessen the weight of the firearm on their hip if they knew that the person they're wrestling really couldn't get to it. Right, right. And, I, and I've heard that before, that police are trained. And I'm not, I may not be using the right verbiage, but police are trained to kill when they pull mm, out their gun. That's right. Because it's kill or be killed. You're, they're trained for survival. And you don't know who has a gun and who doesn't. So they're not trained to shoot you in the arm and, you know, you know how you can be trained to just shoot somebody in the leg. To, mm. No, they're trained to take them down. Yep. Because yep. you don't know who has a gun and who doesn't or who's going to kill you and who won't. Did you so ever anyway, have to, did you ever have to explain any of that to your, to your black son? Um, what I, what I told him is kind of like what I said earlier, you know, you, you gotta be careful. You just never know. And, mm. and when you talked about walking to the park, when I was a child, I could walk to a public park. I could walk to the park by myself. I don't think I ever did, but I could, mm. you know, I could walk to the park with a friend, being a friend could go to the park, but we could say we're going to the park and, and you know, the park had a pool. So you go to the park and come back home in the summer, but you can't do that now because mm. From here to the park, you don't know what's there. You know what I mean? You just can't say right now, because I do have a grandson. If my grandson was old enough to, to go to the park, you know, in the summer to go swimming, hmm. I would never let him walk. To, I don't even know if I'd let him go to the park because now everything is, everything's worse. I don't, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I do. I could walk to the park. My kids could go to the park. And I, most of the time when they went to the park, I took them. But now I don't even know if I would let my grandson. Now here's the third generation. My generation could walk to the park, and there wasn't killings constant. And there weren't uh, homeless everywhere, drug addicts right. everywhere, needles everywhere. Uh, our leadership has failed in the public space spectacularly over the past twenty five years. Oh yeah, because when I was growing up, you might see one person, and we didn't call him homeless, and he probably wasn't homeless. We might see one person and we would say, oh, that there goes a hobo or there's a mm -hmm. bum. But you know what I mean? And my entire childhood growing up in my community, we might see one person and somebody would say, he's a bum. That probably didn't even mean that he was homeless. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Maybe he dressed, maybe he, he, he was an alcoholic or a wino and maybe he dressed, you know, raggedy. And, you know, he probably lived somewhere. You know what I mean? But people would say there's a bum or there's a hobo. But it would be one my entire childhood. Mm -hmm. Now they're everywhere. And these people are definitely homeless. The people that I'm talking about, they probably weren't even homeless. Mm -hmm. And you can't tr so, right. you can't trust the public space. Uh, you can't put your kids on rusted swing sets with needles in the sand. Why? Who would? Right? Who would trust that space? Uh, only if it's a space that you know that's being monitored and cleaned and kept up regularly. And so a lot of public spaces are going to waste because our leadership is just letting them be overrun. Uh, but I can I can say that I'm grateful that they recently had Venice Beach finally cleaned up. Um, that was good. That was good to see. And where did they move the homeless from the beach? That's not 
they're concerned. That's the point. Uh, they they issued, uh, they let everybody know. I think it was two days ahead of time. They said, in two days, you're gonna have to be gone. You know, you don't got to go home, but you gotta gotta get out of here. Basically, you have to get off of the Venice Beach, um, which is just is a small area. There's plenty of there's plenty of places in L.A. to set up shop. It's not like the whole county's getting cleaned up, but it's just Venice Beach. They just said you have to get off Venice Beach because it's a tourist spot and it's costing tourist dollars. And I'm confident that that's finally what pushed the needle over the edge was that look, we could be making a lot more tourist dollars if we cleaned up this boardwalk. Um, and so they just told him to get because off the I, beach. Yeah. Because I believe, and I don't know, you know, there's so many homeless people. I, I, I don't know. You know, you can, you can provide temporary housing. Now, sometimes you provide temporary housing and that just turns into, you know, drug houses or, or, or whatever. Hmm. But you could provide temporary housing and give homeless people, and, and maybe it wouldn't work, and give homeless people a deadline to find, uh, what is it, permanent housing. But the problem with that is people were homeless because maybe they lost their job or, or, or they have an illness. I don't know. People are homeless because of, you know, not because of choice, some, because maybe they're just down on their luck and they're unemployed. I don't know. And they have nowhere to go. Well, that group of people, I would think they could go into temporary housing two months, three months, 90 days, I don't know, and figure out you know, how to get public assistance and figure out a place to live other than the street. Hmm. But then there's another percentage of the people who are homeless. You put them in temporary housing and they're, they're not interested in finding a job because they're just interesting when they're going to get their next, uh, I don't know, uh, drug, what, it, what it, their drug of choice, when, mm-hmm. when they're going to get their next fix. Mm-hmm. So some, it won't work. You, you put them in, a, in, in, in um, I guess, 90 days of, of, of shelter and, you say, you know, you have to make some progress in 90 days and some won't. So then I don't know what you do with that part of the population. And then some people who are homeless just have mental problems. And I don't know what the answer is there. When I was growing up, they had mental institutions, a lot of them. Mm. I'm not saying put everybody in a mental institution because, you know, they said that didn't work and people were being abused and so forth and so on. So, so I don't know, you know, if it's but, drugs. But there was a baby in that bathwater. I'm actually a proponent for reinstituting the asylum system. Um, I know why they closed it down. I've seen some of those cases. Uh, people were being absolutely mistreated. But the people that were being mistreated wasn't the majority. It wasn't that 60% of the people who were uh, being asylumed were being mistreated. It was... 10, 15, 5, it was, you know, there was a lot, don't get me wrong, there were a lot of people that were being mistreated, and, but it wasn't a reason to shut the whole thing down. Uh, and what what the asylum system did, and Japan still has an asylum system, from what I understand, uh, what the asylum system does is that there are people, like this woman who used to camp out over by the Starbucks when I lived in Culver City, and she would sit on the payphone, uh, and she would just yell into the payphone, or she would sit on the curb and she would just curse out. She was cursing out her sister or something like that. She was she was telling her sister why Diane Feinstein was so terrible. She this is what she was always going. She was covered in urine and feces all the time. Uh, she was obviously incapable of keeping herself together. So a person like that needs to be able to be put somewhere against their will. And you, even though we've lost the the public 
tolerance for seeing someone being moved against their will. In this case, this woman, even though she would kick and scream if picked up by the police, she'd end up sheltered, showered, and not covered in urine and feces. And that's better for her. Even against her will, that's better for her. And so cases like that, we need to be able to, prov to provide dignity for these people. And that's what the asylum system did. And we threw that baby out with the bathwater uh, years ago, several years ago. So you're right. So cases like that, you have to go back to that system because I don't know what else is left. Mm -hmm. And then people on drugs, I don't know if you just, I don't know how you solve the drug issue. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of parts to it. But there are some people who are just homeless because, I don't know, the husband and wife lost their job, whatever. Mm -hmm. Or the mm -hmm. or the wife um, was a single mother and she lost her job. And, and maybe those people would, you know, survive and find housing. I don't know so much. But regarding this interview, you're not going to put all this online, right? You're going to edit it. <laughs> At the, uh, there wasn't anything else that haven't edited out so far. Well, I mean, because it's three hours. I mean, who uh -huh. would listen to? <laughs> People do. People do. Uh, the The point of my podcast, and it's in the same line with Joe Rogan's podcast, which is just just people communicating and people communicating freely uh and i think people communicating responsibly one thing that i enjoy about it uh is that it forces me to be responsible with the way that i phrase things because i know that they're going on the public record um which is good for me and i get to connect with people and talk about things and but i will send you this audio before it goes out to the public and you will get a chance to review all of it. None of it will go public without your express approval. And I can't edit. I can remove any bit, any bit. That's easy. Oh, okay. Cause this is what I wonder. You and I are okay. Cause we know one another and you and I can talk and we don't see each other often. So you and I can talk for hours, mm -hmm. but I'm just not sure anybody else wants to listen to it for hours. <laughs> well, they don't have to. Uh, one of the things about, about this day and age that I like about this type of podcast is long form podcast is that if there's people who listen to the first 30 minutes and go, uh, I've got what I want to get, they can go. They don't have to. There's no for, you know, there's no forcing them. They can go tune to something else. Uh, but if there's someone who particularly likes what you have to say and find it interesting and likes the way we go back and forth, I would imagine uh, Aaron and Lance and Uncle Dwayne are probably going to listen to the whole thing. <laughs> And uh, the and like, again, I, I, I can't imagine can. even Aaron. I can't imagine even Aaron. <laughs> Look, she doesn't want to listen to me live this long, mm. let alone online. Well, they serve as a bit of a time capsule as well. And what my mom has done is uh, some of the, my podcasts, she'll listen over three days. And I do that with a lot of podcasts, too, uh, where they're three hour episodes. I j actually just did this with Joe Rogan talking to Quentin Tarantino. Uh, it was a three hour conversation. And I just listened to it over three days. I just listened to an hour on one day, an hour on another, an hour on another. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, that's true. You could Maybe you could call them chapters. Yep. Yep. Divide them into chapters. What would you want to right. say, Auntie you, Janice? I'll uh, I'll let you go because people do run out at about three hours. Uh, even even in the long form, they never they'll never listen to the fourth hour. But what would you want to say to those young teachers out there just stepping out of college, haven't yet got their own classroom? Uh, what would you say to them to set them on the right track? I would say. 
you know, learning. Um, I believe in lifelong learning. So even as a teacher, you're still learning. You know, even when you become a teacher, even when you get your degrees, you know, you, it, learning is infinite. It goes on forever. Um, because life changes, time changes. You know, um, how we teach change. Um, history changes. It, it's changing minute by minute, day by day. So um, teaching is life is lifelong learning, not just for the students, but it is for you too. So I, I think uh, my takeaway from teaching is it's made me a better person because if I had to teach it, I had to learn it. So it's made me a better person. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you're a brand new teacher, you've got to um, also have some boundaries, you know, you could correct papers and prepare for uh, your class all night long, but that's not a life. So you have to know when to, what do they say? Know when to hold them and know when to fold them, I guess. Hmm. So, um, so live a balanced life. And I hope, you know, you, you teach as a balanced individual, you know, you got to worry about your own health also, you know, that, that just makes up the whole person as it does the whole child. So the whole person is making sure that you get, physical activity and nutrition, um, you know, as a person and rest and, you know, knowledge. Well, when you're teaching children, it's the same thing. You know, they're a whole person. You're just not teaching academics. You're teaching them uh, how to relate to people, how to communicate with people, how to be a better person. So you're teaching the whole child and keep that in mind. And I think time will go quickly and, um, I've never regretted a day of my teaching, my 40 plus years of teaching, way over 40. I'm afraid to tell you the exact amount of years, but I think I, I think I'm at year 46. <laughs> well, you've been an excellent teacher to me. Uh, and so I'm grateful to, to be able to learn from you and sit in this position and continue to, to ride your coattails. Oh no. And I, and I've learned from you just, you know, you, you put it in words that, you know, you describe things, you know, more succinctly than than I could have done. So I'm learning from you. Teaching is a, is a two way street, the, the learner and the student. You learn from one another. So thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. It's my pleasure. All right. And you say hello to Lorraine. I will. I will. OK, love you. Love you. Bye bye. Bye.